You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 535. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the last day of August 2022. In today's show, a West Sweden ATP autopilot fails to disconnect. Howling partially flies off the left engine of an Alaska 737. The NTSB issues its final report of a Southwest Airlines runway excursion at the Hollywood Burbank Airport in December of 2018. More news and your feedback. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 535 is ready for pushback. Yay! I did it. it. (laughs) Nailed it. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. And joining me today from his studio in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlanta Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Jeff, uh, what a shame we don't have a Nick Nick. We could be really confused tonight. Yes, we could. Well, we'll still be confused, regardless. All right. And also joining us from Warrington, PA, former U.S. Air Force F-15 pilot, American Airlines captain, and now a Citation 10 pilot, the good-looking Captain Jeff. I don't know about the good-looking part, but I'm just glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're glad you're here as well. Atlanta Virgin? Pardon me? Virgin Atlanta is what you said Nick flew for a little while. Well, I said Virgin Atlantic, but maybe it sounded like Atlanta. (laughs) If you're going to be be critical here, Jeff, I'm going to boot you off this thing. Bye, Jeff. You're leaving, (laughs) right? (laughs) All right. Well, the Trollo low man needs to stop. That was easy. All right. Oh, look at that. He's gone. Well, I didn't do that. And uh, while he's gone... (laughs) A place Thanks, to stand, a place to grow. It is from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. You guys behave yourselves now. <laughs> yeah, no right. chance. Yeah. All See right. you later. McDonald Douglas rule. Hmm. I've been on these shows without Steph, and it's always a hoot. <laughs> no HR. <laughs> Steph has nothing to do with whether or not we're behaving or not. In it's fact, just she's a, often the worst. She's the one that's, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, she's the stirrer. Do you hear me on Skype, Jeff? Yeah. I do hear you, uh, Liz. Thank you. Uh, sound room just doing a check, or the control room doing a check. And uh, you know what we should do? We should uh, do the news. Good idea.
stand by for news. Let's start with this. A West, this is from the AV Herald, Aviation Herald. A West Air Sweden BAE ATP registration Sierra Echo Lima Papa Sierra performing freight flight 522 from East Midlands, England to the Isle of Man, UK with two crew was on final approach to Isle of Man's runway 26 when the first officer pilot flying attempted to disconnect the active autopilot 2. However, no autopilot disconnect whaler occurred and there was resistance on the flight controls, although both primary flight displays showed the autopilot disconnected. The captain took control, pressed the sync button, or maybe it's SYN button, I'm not sure, S-Y-N, felt no longer resistance to flight control inputs and continued for a safe landing. On August 25th, 2022, just mere days ago, the AAIB released their final bulletin, concluding the probable causes of the incident were the autopilot wouldn't disconnect. Uh, No, the investigation concluded that the anomalies with the audio warnings were probably associated with corrosion and moisture caused by water ingress through the DV windows. DV windows, what's that? Direct vision windows. Oh, okay, sure. I'm thinking. Sounds good. Yeah, sounds good to me. Go with that. Um, Let's see. The AAIB was unable to replicate the reported anomalies in the autopilot system, but theoretical analysis by the autopilot man autopilot manufacturer identified a scenario involving the autopilot disconnect button and the associated debounce circuit that could lead to a partial disengagement of the autopilot. This scenario could explain the previous occurrences on Golf, Bravo, Uniform, Uniform, Romeo, and Sierra Echo, uh, Mike, Hotel, Foxtrot, but would only partially explain the occurrence to this particular airplane. Although the aircraft abnormal emergency checklist did contain a procedure for the failure of the autopilot to disengage, the commander reacted instinctively due to his awareness of a previous occurrence that he had read about in an AAIB report. While the slipping cut clutch is designed to allow the crew to overpower an autopilot that does not disengage, a substantial increase in the force required to operate the flying controls when late on the approach could present an increased safety risk to the aircraft. The commander used the sync button, which allowed him to operate the controls without hindrance and land the aircraft without further incident. Uh, the AAIB analyzed that, uh, well, they said the investigation could not find or identify any faults with the autopilot system that could explain the resistance to movement in the flying controls. But uh, then it goes on into a little bit more detail about audio warnings and how the autopilot works with the various servos, etc., etc. Um, I don't know. Uh, Captain Nick, um, what do you think? What's going on I, here? I don't know what a sync button is. I don't either. Does anyone else know? I don't know. I'm not an AT. Well, hey, any AT, uh, ATP pilots in our live audience? I think they're all dead. Um, oh, iHall Boxes <laughs> says uh, ATP stands for Always Technical Problems. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, this one of the, this was not British Aerospace's crowning glory, uh, this airplane. Uh, the fact it's got leaky windows doesn't surprise me. Um uh, and letting moisture in, but uh, yeah, uh, I, I I don't understand the technical issues raised. Um, it sounds like they did everything they should do, uh, but I think uh, the possibility was that they might have been better off attempting a go around um, and then sorting it out to make sure. Because if you find that 
the autopilot does something weird in the last 10 feet, you could be really embarrassed, uh, you know. And whilst he thought he'd got it sorted, my feeling is climb the airplane away, get it to a safe height, do a low-speed handling check, uh, make sure that you've got full control of the airplane, and then make another approach. But that's that's just me. So yeah, there you go. We should, we should, we we need Myler on the show. Yes, you're quite right. Yeah, Neil. Yeah. Thank you, Neil, for that suggestion. A little late, don't you think? <laughs> yes. But, okay. She wasn't on the jump seat. No, I uh, I looked for her all day. I couldn't find her. By the way, I love the the picture of the circuit board. I mean, that's that's really high tech. That stuff, isn't it? Look, <laughs> yeah, it looks Here like a are. like an old Radio Shack, uh, <laughs> exactly. Inner, right. Radio innards. I've seen World War Two airplanes <laughs> with better looking circuit boards than that. Well, at least it's not tubes, vacuum tubes. That's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yes, that's very true. But if it had vacuum tubes, it'd be impervious to nuclear. What do you call that? Nuclear yeah, something. EMP. Something. E- that's EMP, yeah. Yeah. That. Um, yeah. Goodness. So, well, there you have it. Anything uh, else to I can't really say much about it, but there you go. Yeah. That's my only real input. I thought perhaps, uh, you know, they should have uh, flown away and had to think about it before attempting the landing. I don't get it that he pushed a button and didn't get the siren, mm-hmm. but it did, but, it, but it showed connected still. Yeah. And it's like, did he hit the wrong button? <laughs> well, I don't know. No, I th- I had a feeling that the flight director and the pilot's flying display would show that the autopilot was disengaged. So it Good. did appear to be disengaged, and they but they didn't get the whaler because of the corrosion ah. in that circuit board, and um, they also felt stiffness on the controls, indicating that perhaps the autopilot was still sort of physically uh, engaged on the control system. That was my reading of it. It's embarrassing to have stiffness on the controls, isn't it? No, actually, it's a good thing. <laughs> some, um, some people would say, yes, it was yeah, a good thing, good yes. Thing. The pill uh, not was working. The, not in this case. Though. It wasn't a Falcon. Yeah. On the Falcon, <laughs> if the autopilot dis- doesn't disconnect, you cannot overpower it. Oh, really? It does not have that ability. Oh, it's wow. pretty interesting. That's no good. Yeah. No, that's, no, I don't like the sound of that. Mm-mm. All right, let's move on. We're going to try to knock out as much feedback as possible on today's show. So we're going to try to make the news uh, portion segment of the show as short as possible. And uh, let's go to this next item in the news, uh, an incident. Alaska Air Boeing 737-900 registration November 293 Alpha Kilo performing flight uh, 558 from Seattle, Washington to San Diego with 176 passengers and six crew, was climbing out of Seattle's runway 16 left when the crew felt an unusual vibration from the left side of the aircraft. Let's see uh, if we have maybe some news coverage of this. Looking live out at SeaTac Airport, some scary moments for people on an Alaska Airlines flight from Seattle this morning as a plane made an emergency landing. Take a look here, some video we just got in tonight. And you can see parts of the left engine Whoa. coming loose during the landing. They start flapping eventually. Is they it Christmas? Free, the unwrapping the engine. the engine? Alaska Airlines says the crew had reported an unusual vibration wow. on the side of the plane soon after takeoff. This is a different view here. The plane returned to the airport and landed safely. Nobody was hurt. The plane was headed to San Diego. and Passengers were rebooked on a different flight. There we go. <laughs> Funny old thing. <laughs> so that was uh, some interesting video footage. Um, 
So it'll be in the show notes if you want to watch it too. Um, not entirely unusual for this sort of thing to occur. Um, now, I know that we've seen incidents like this where cowling has kind of let loose and they've kind of blamed it on um, maybe some maintenance was performed and they didn't fully latch the cowling latches. or And then uh, on the pre-flight inspection, it was missed. Um, but that doesn't always seem to be the case, but it's a possibility here, I guess. This was a 7.3, right? Yes. Yeah, on the 7.3, to see those latches, they're on the belly of the engine. Do you have to get on your back on the ground? No, you have to You have to kneel down. You mm-hmm. have to squat down really deep or uh, kneel down to see them. And you're even then you're still bending over some. And it was something I mm-hmm. did routinely because y- you didn't want that yeah. to happen. Because the, those doors will fly off. You probably should not have gone the reverse because the the blowers are right there, the openings, and that's probably why that other door came off. But that was a big deal. It was a huge pre-flight item. Would that be something? Uh, I know you, you know it's been a while since you've flown the seven three, but would that be something in the um, abnormal checklist to you know like consider not using no. reverse thrust or? No, it's not okay. in the checklist at all. Okay, interesting. All right. Well, I'm sure that was exciting for the passengers and the pilots. Yeah. All right. And whoever did the pre-flight. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Really I mean, it became person. so serious on the Airbus because we had a, a number of those happen in a relatively short time. No particular reason other than, you know, there was a spate of people leaving them unlashed. And um, then our company uh, insisted that every time those uh, cows were unlatched, you had to put an entry in the technical log, an engineering entry, which then had to be signed off to confirm that uh, they had been latched. So that's how seriously it was taken, because normally you just open those cowlings, replenish the oil or whatever you're going to do in there, and lock them up again. But obviously, you know, the company went, well, we're not going to have one of these, so uh, that's what we're going to do. That's a good idea. Yep. It is. All right. Well, that was a 737, Alaska type. Um, Let's talk about another 737 incident. This is a final report from the NTSB. (laughs) What's that? Pick on pick on Jeff Day. No, well, it's good I mean, you're here because we we've got know, an expert. <laughs> we didn't know you were going to be here with us today. Uh, <laughs> these items okay. have been in the news notebook for quite some time, so if we're not picking on it's you. It's a happy coincidence. Yes, a happy coincidence yeah. for sure. Uh, so uh, let's see. This was a Southwest Airlines flight, uh, number 278, from uh, Oakland International Airport to Hollywood Burbank Airport in uh, Southern California. When it overran the end of runway 8, the airplane came to rest about 144 feet past the departure end of runway, of the runway and 71 feet into the engineered materials arresting system, the EMAS uh, setup. Uh, shortly before the airplane touched down on the runway, the tower controller informed the flight crew that heavy precipitation was occurring directly over the airport and the wind was from 270 degrees at 11 knots. Burbank uh, has runway 8, which was 5,802 feet in length, kind of short. One of the shortest runway runways at airports where Southwest operated. Before the airplane reached the top of descent, the flight crew requested and received a landing data report generated from the Southwest Airlines Performance Weight and Balance System, the PWB, 
The report indicated that the max that maximum auto brake should be used for landing on runway eight, and that the stopping margin, that is the difference between the calculated landing distance, including a 15% safety factor, and the runway length available, the difference would be 245 feet. Ooh, that's uh, not a lot. Uh, so that's the that's the calculated spare room at the end of the runway when you grind to a halt. Yeah. Yeah, with maximum auto brakes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And that was based on, well, here, let's go. Uh, the PWB system calculations assumed the touchdown would occur 1,500 feet from the runway threshold and that the wind would be from about 280 at five knots, not 11 at the time when they uh, were, were what was being reported at the time. Uh, and uh, both flight crew members expressed concern about the stopping distance given the wet runway. Wet runway. Okay, let's throw that one in too. Uh, the tailwind the tailwind that would be present and the runway length and and they discussed that the braking action upon touchdown would need to be pretty abrupt also even though the first officer stated during a post incident interview that Burbank always has a low number for the stopping margin the captain stated that he had not previously seen a stopping margin as low as the one for this incident flight while the airplane was descending through the terminal area, the controller advised the flight crew that the pilot of a King Air airplane reported a 15-knot loss of airspeed on final approach, and a corporate jet had just conducted a go-around at Burbank because of the wind. Hmm. Okay, another couple items to throw in there and kind of make the hair on the back of your neck start standing up and wondering, hmm, is this a good idea? However, after the controller uh, cleared the airplane to land, the controller advised the flight crew that a pilot of a Boeing 737 airplane had reported braking action as good 10 minutes earlier. Oh, okay, now, eh, maybe it's not that bad. Shortly before landing, the tower controller reported that the wind was from 270 degrees at 10, and then less than one minute later, 270 at 11. The Southwest Boeing 737 uh, New Generation Aircraft Operating Manual stated that the tailwind limit for landing was 10 knots. After the second wind report, the first officer stated, we got 11 knots. You want to call it good? The captain replied, yeah. During a post-incident interview, the captain stated that both he and the first officer assumed that the tailwind component would be about 9 to 10 knots, presumably because the wind would not be directly behind the airplane given the wind direction and the orientation of the runway. The Southwest Airlines 737 operating manual also stated that for tailwind landings, the target speed should be the reference landing speed plus 5. The PWB system determined that the VREF for the flight would be 126 knots, so the target speed should have been 131. However, the aircraft performance study for this incident determined that the airplane's speed over the runway threshold was 137, so about 6 knots higher. Also, the true airspeed and ground speed, based on flight data recorder data, showed that a tailwind of 13 to 18 knots was over the runway at that time, hmm. uh, considerably more than they were planning, and not the five-knot tailwind that the PWB system calculations assumed. Further, the aircraft performance study found that the airplane touched down about 2,500 feet past the runway threshold, mm -hmm. which was 1,000 feet beyond the 1,500-foot touchdown it point assumed in the PWB system calculations. This study finding was consistent with uh, the Burbank Tower Controller's observation of the airplane touching down near the intersection of runway Delta 7 and runway 8, which was about 2,600 feet from the runway threshold. The operating manual stated that if an airplane were to touch down beyond the 1,500 foot point, the stopping margin that the PWB system calculated would be invalid, and that in some cases the runway length would be insufficient for the airplane to stop. 
In this case, the longer the normal touchdown point, the higher than expected tailwind, and the faster than nominal approach speed increased the airplane's required landing distance, making the 245-foot stopping margin calculation invalid. All right, so here we go. They have some more um, narrative here, uh, in addition to some more um, you know, quotes from their interviews and such. But I think you, you get the picture here. Um, it wasn't the conditions were not good for landing on runway eight. You have no. wet runway, you have a higher than reported tailwind, you're touching down on the runway well past the point at which you had to be on the runway for this to be a successful uh, landing. Uh, it's, it's there are a lot of things going on, including, you know, let's throw in the wind shear, the 15 knot law. I mean, it's um, a very demanding situation. Yeah. So what do you think, Captain Jeff? So is this an 800? I, I missed that. I don't know if it's said in this. Yeah, I don't think so. Oh, so it would be a 700 then, maybe. It would be a 700, so it's, a, it's shorter. Yeah. I was wondering, because the, the ref for an 800, would be, they must have been empty for that ref speed. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you, an 800, he ain't stopping on that runway. <laughs> yeah. his, ref <laughs> about, his approach speed would have been over 140, because the airplane's so long, you have an inflated ref speed. Mm-hmm. And max brakes on that airplane are really good, but you only have four tires with brakes. Mm-hmm. Two on each side. And I used... 8,500 feet of a 9,000-foot-long runway in Mexico one time. Uh, now, that wasn't grooved. This is a grooved runway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when, you, you know, if their performance data is showing 240 feet and they got twice the amount of tailwind, that airplane's not stopping, not even close. He can be max. And it's interesting because the PWB normally doesn't include uh, reverse thrust. It just, it just uses mm-hmm. brakes. So I, with the extra thousand feet of float down the runway and it's like midway all over again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they've yeah. had, they had an incident uh, several years ago on at Burbank as well. Um, run, you know, running off the end of the runway. I think since then they installed this EMAS and, uh, that definitely helped the situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, man, I mean, just reading this report and yeah, maybe just, you know, almost shiver a little bit. All these things. Yeah, we, like, all down, we all look down at the inertial nav, not the inertial, but at your, your displays, and you can see the tailwind there. You know, you can see the tailwind component, and that's it's only because you'll see different numbers on each side of the cockpit, so because they're each coming off of a different inertial nav unit, and uh, it's um, just not something I trust. If I see something, if I'm looking at ten more or more knots. Or if I hear, I mean, 270 at 11 is an 11 knot tailwind. It's only 10 degrees off the runway. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're that's twice what you think. And is that the limit with 245 feet? No, I'd have gone around. Yeah. It looks like uh, neither of the pilots appreciated that they had done a long landing. That That's part of it. And this takes me to the fact that, um, you know, it's not easy on civil airfields to work out how long the runway is, how far you've got to go, where your touchdown point is relative to the length of the runway, particularly on runways like this where they shorten is quite critical. In the military, we always had 1,000-foot markers. So you could count, you could see exactly where you were in relation to the length of the runway where you touched down. You've got to really know the airport quite well sometimes, as they suggest here. You'd have to know that that taxiway they – 
went past when they touched down was two and a half thousand feet in to really know exactly where it was you landed. So, you know, for me, that would have helped them a lot if they'd had that, you know, indication, but very few civil airports um, do it for some reason. For me, you know, when I'm coming in on a, a contaminated runway like this, I'm actually ducking under the glide slope a little bit because I want to land as close to the the approach end as I can. And it's an incomplete flare. I'm going to put it down a little bit firm to make sure I don't bounce or float. I want it on the ground so I can get those brakes working. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I suppose the fact that there'd been a a speed wind shear and a speed drop by 15 knots perhaps made them a little bit cautious of, of doing that and perhaps that's why he was had a little bit of speed in hand he was anticipating that and went mm, okay but w- when you realize that actually you floated a bit and your speed's pretty high that's the time to go well let's go around and have another go this one wasn't perfect yeah somebody's asking uh the reverse wet runway reverse is taken into account no it's contaminated runways you put the uh, thrust reversers in not wet okay yeah well, interesting, uh, interesting final report or inter- interesting incident. And uh, again, that was uh, about three years ago, more, almost four years yeah. ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the other point I was going to make was it's all right to plan for a set of weather conditions. But as soon as you realize that the actual conditions are different, you've got to throw the plan out of the window and you can't just rely on sticking a wet finger into the airstream to gauge whether you're going to stop or not. You know, you've, you've got to go, those numbers we calculated are invalid. They already only gave us a 250-odd-foot margin. Um, we've probably lost that now. You know, this is time to think fast and do the responsible mm-hmm. thing. Easy for me to say. <laughs> I don't have to do it anymore. Right. <laughs> that pilot thing. Yeah, it is. It's a pilot thing. It is. And, you know, that completion bias, I think that is what they call that, uh, where you just, you know, you, you just don't start taking these cues bias. or continuation bias. Uh, yeah. Uh, where you, yeah, you're just like, this is my plan and this I'm sticking to it regardless of what happens around me. Yeah. You know, the world's falling Ten, down around me and I'm just going to keep going, you know. Ten to one, if this bloke had been given the same situation on a simulator check ride when he's expecting to have to deal with these kind of things, uh, yep. he would have gone, oh, I'm going around. Yeah. Because that's the safe option. He knew he might well be criticized by his trainer uh, and fail the check ride if he if he doesn't, uh, particularly when he's been told the wind's out of limits <laughs> for, for the company. <laughs> and he's floated, then uh, fluted. Yeah, fluted. You don't want to have a fluter. No, yeah, definitely yeah. not. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, good points. Very good points. Um, it's interesting sometimes, though, how uh, when we're in the in the real world and you know getting that mission completion uh, bias and everything else. It's just yeah. Uh, yeah. If you're in the simulator, you know everybody is uh, analyzing and evaluating every decision you're making. Um, and in the airplane, you should probably have that same kind of feeling that everything is going to be possibly evaluated yeah. in the to future. Answer Gubby's to answer Gubby's question: When you're in max brakes on a seven three. Mm-hmm. Weight on wheels, and you have 3,000 pounds of PSI pushing the brakes down. It's instantaneous. Yeah. Yeah, but he, he delayed a little bit before he actually got max braking pressure on, I think. What? No. He, if he, if he, well, if he set the auto brakes to max brake, it's instantaneous. 
Yeah, but he he kicked him off. I think quick. almost as soon as the auto brakes came on. Yeah, and uh, and it took him six seconds to get full pedal pressure on. Yeah, uh, that was a part that I didn't read. I perhaps yeah. should have included that in our so discussion. That didn't here. help either. No, and that, all this he's got fifteen percent margin uh, there, safety margin. But mm-hmm. all this is eating into his fifteen percent, yeah. and yeah. on a runway that short, fifteen percent isn't a lot. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, any any kind of margin at all that they thought that they had was kind of wiped out by almost every single item that was yeah. not yeah, what yeah. they expected. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, just, just extra five knots of tailwind is enough to almost put them off the end of the runway. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's move on with this uh, last item in our no, not the last second to last item in our news segment. Uh, the FAA moves secondary flight deck barrier requirement forward. The U.S. Department of Transportation's FAA has proposed requiring a second barrier to the flight deck on certain commercial airplanes. The additional barrier would protect flight decks from intrusion when the flight deck door is open. Uh, Flight crews keep us safe when we travel to visit loved ones, explore new places, and conduct business. They, too, deserve to be protected. And this rulemaking is an important step, according to uh, U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. The proposed rule requires aircraft manufacturers to install a second physical barrier on airplanes produced after the rule goes... Wait, hang on. The proposed rule requires aircraft manufacturers to install a second physical barrier on airplanes produced after the rule goes into effect. Okay. So only in brand new airplanes after this rule goes into effect. No retrofitting. No retrofitting. Uh, Each additional layer of safety matters. Protecting flight crews helps keep our system the safest in the world. According to the acting administrator of the FAA, Billy Nolan, who is a helicopter pilot and former commercial airline captain. Last year, the Biden-Harris administration put the secondary flight deck barrier on its priority rulemaking list. Uh, During 2019 and 2020, the FAA worked with aircraft manufacturers, labor partners, and others to gather recommendations that are included in today's proposal. The Administrative Procedures Act requires FAA to follow the full rulemaking process for this mandate that Congress included in the 2018 FAA Reauthorization Act. (laughs) The 2018 FAA Reauthorization Act. Yeah, four years ago. The public has 60 days to comment on the proposed rule once it's published in the Federal Register. The FAA will publish a final rule after the comment period closes. All right. This is interesting. My congressman, well, I, don't, I don't know if you're aware, but two of the pilots killed on 9-11 were from my area. Mm. And the local congressman has been fighting for the secondary barrier since like 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was United had some airplanes with this. And uh, I've never seen one, but I've heard it's like an, an accordion door, but like a chain link fence that comes out uh, on the opposite side from the cab from the uh, cockpit door right before first class. So if you come in the airplane, you turn right, you would that's where the door would be instead of turn left to go to the cockpit. So if you came up from first class, you wouldn't be able to get to the galley. That's my understanding. Whereas, like I said, I've never seen one, but that was my understanding. I think United had a couple of jets. They were tried it with. Well, I think that uh, it, it does depend on the. Yes, Mike, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Put all the passengers in cuffs when they get on board. <laughs> well, that's one way to handle, you know, a situation. Probably not the best. Um, 
the uh, it depends on the airplane where you know on the airplane that i fly the barrier would have to be a little bit further back after you've turned right because you know the whole point of it is to allow us access to the uh, the lav first class lav um anyway it's on the other side of the door yeah oh well i mean you you walk in and then you hang around. Yeah, it's not on the left like it is on most of the, the Boeings. It's on the right. Uh, after you hang a right like you're going into first class. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, same place it was on the uh, the MD-80 you flew, or 82. But it's been a while. So. That's been a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Finally, uh, a bald Eagle in TSA line surprises Charlotte airport passengers. And this is from the Washington Post. Yes, a bald eagle went through a TSA checkpoint. It was on a business trip. And it's a very large uh, eagle, too. Look, it's like bigger than bigger than the woman. <laughs> bigger than that woman there. Yeah. Wow. Um, which came in handy for screening in Charlotte. Okay. Uh, it's often a thrill to spot a and bald eagle. And it's not eagle. bald. It's got feathers all over it. Oh, that's true, huh? Well, it must be a lucky one. This is bald eagle. (laughs) I'm getting bald. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Mans is out here bringing a bald eagle through TSA at Charlotte Douglas, one man wrote on Twitter Monday. Who's Mans? Mans, I don't know. Some sort of slang thing. Mans is out here bringing a bald eagle through TSA at Charlotte Douglas, one man wrote on Twitter Monday, along with a... (laughs) On Twitter, there's an accent. You can you can you, you can detect it a little bit. <laughs> Very good. Uh, along with a video of an eagle flapping its wings and craning its neck while perched on a handler's left arm, fellow social media users suggested it was an emotional support eagle, and wondered if it would fly regional carrier American Eagle. Ugh. Oh, bad. Don't. Yeah, <laughs> the avian passenger was actually on a business trip. Clark the eagle from the world. Uh, bird sanctuary in missouri had traveled to charlotte to make an appearance at high point university the school said in a tweet hatched at the sanctuary as part of a breeding program about 20 years ago clark could not be released into the wild like his siblings according to the organization's website so he became a flying ambassador at special events anyway pretty interesting huh i want to see the tsa agent who got to frisk him <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, he's no longer alive. Yeah, he's in the hospital. Eyes, eye, penetrating eyes. It is yeah. a beautiful looking bird, though. It is. It made it great. Liz is making the point that those eyes are just beautiful, penetrating eyes. Yeah. All right. Well, Not as penetrating as that beak. Yeah, that would be very penetrating. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah, guy. Yeah, you touch me with that wand, and you're going to get something here. Yeah. yeah okay. Absolutely. We're good. We're good. We good. Yeah. All right. Um, you know what it is? What time it is? It's time to do this. It's time to get to know us. Hence, the getting to know you theme. Mm-hmm. Getting to like us. Getting to hope you like us too. Yes, those are the real words. They changed it in the play and the movie. Um, ah. Oh, ah. whoa. Look at that. My wish Somebody has come true. Just Nick joined Nick. us. So we have Jeff Jeff and Nick Nick. Hey, Nick Camacho. Hey there. How's it going? Good. Tap your microphone. Nope. It's your um, computer, I think, that uh, that I'm listening to. Your computer mic, not your uh, Motu. Nope. Still not there? Now it is. There it is. 
You got it now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. So uh, we just finished the news segment, uh, Camacho, and we're about to do the uh, getting to know us segment. Do you want to say anything to the community before we do that? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, good. Well, we're um, it was a short news segment today, and we're going to try to cover a bunch of feedback. So I'm glad you're here. Glad to be here. All right. Um, and by the way, just in case you're not aware, and this is the first time listening to the show, Nick Camacho is an airspace uh, engineer uh, working in the aerospace. I'm sorry, not airspace, but their airspace is part of aerospace, right? Um, and uh, I, sh- I should probably just look at I'm his I'm trying little... to work out how you engineer in airspace. What kind <laughs> well, of tools do you use? The, the, the people at NASA. Uh, <laughs> I'm FAA. sure there's somebody uh, employed by the FAA to do that. Yeah. Yeah, the other podcast. <laughs> there is, yeah, like the opposing bases podcast. Did yeah, I show you a spanner? Do you use show you my mug? Right, engineer opposing bases. Oh, did you wash it? Anyway, yeah, no, I didn't. It, <laughs> I didn't. Well, I, you know what? I wa- hand washed it, but it, uh, it still fell off. Anyway, um, so uh, he is a. Uh, where are you? Here we go. Uh, he's from the, Wichita, air, the air capital, low and slow pilot, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry. There you go. That's Nick. So now you're up to speed, and we're going to talk about uh, stuff that has happened uh, to all of us between shows. And uh, let's see, Nick. Um, Oh, you know what? I'm going to, I think I'm going to go first. Um, and then, um, we'll save, uh, Captain Nick for last. How about, okay. Um, let's see. We have some photos here that uh, Liz is going to share with us, uh, of, um, a meetup that I had on Sunday, uh, afternoon. Um, Nick Arander and his girlfriend, Jenny, uh, contacted me a little over two weeks ago and said that they were going to be flying into Atlanta and then heading up to, um, where all do they go? Asheville, North Carolina, um, uh, Pigeon Forge and Dollywood and Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, then I think they worked their way down to the Gulf Coast, New Orleans, I think. Uh, and then over the uh, through the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and then uh, finally the Florida Panhandle, uh, Pensacola Beach, and then finally back north to the Atlanta International Airport. And um, they said, hey, if uh, you're available, it'd be a lot of fun to meet up with you. And so I drove down to the uh, a city right next to the Atlanta International Airport called College Park and uh, the brake pad and uh, grill, bar and grill, I think they call it. And uh, yeah, so here are some pictures from that. It was great to uh, meet Nick in person. He's a patron and has been for quite a while. They were flying home that night, yes. And uh, so we met about 4.30-ish, and then I think they had to return the rental car around 7.30, and then at some point thereafter, they uh, made their all-night flight back home to London. So it was really cool. Uh, meeting them and uh, oh I should mention uh, and I and I included this in my um, my daily digest I've been trying to do uh, crew logs uh, as a it's a perk for those of you or those who have uh, signed up to be patrons of the show and um, so I think uh, the one that I did for Sunday uh, was a recording a video recording that I had made with uh, the two of them uh, at the brake pad so uh, 
uh, more incentive for you to uh, consider uh, becoming a patron via Patreon. And uh, I think that was pretty much it. Uh, I haven't flown a trip since the last show, have I? I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I had most, I kind of planned my schedule so I'd have most of the week off because uh, uh, things are going on here at um, APG headquarters and uh, some some moves being made. And well, it's still, I mean, I mean, where is the headquarters then, Liz, if it's not here? Wherever you are. (laughs) Wherever I am is where the headquarters are. So right now it is the APG headquarters. Um, What else do I have in here? Anything else? Uh, No, that's it. I am um, scheduled to go out on a three-day trip leaving on Sunday. So I'll get to uh, sing at uh, the Vigil Mass on Saturday afternoon and uh, early evening. And then I'll be out for a uh, three-day trip. And I think I go to... Oh, shoot. I have to pull Baton it up. Oh, that's right. Madison. Thank you. Baton Rouge, and Madison, uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> uh, it's so nice to have her in my ear telling me what the heck that I'm going to be doing. It's scary when she knows your schedule better than you do. I know. It is, really. We should be calling her Babelfish because you Babelfish, stick her yeah. in your ear. You know what? It's really bad is that I rely upon her so much while I'm doing the show that like during non-show times i'm expecting to hear liz <laughs> like i'm having a conversation That's with somebody and i'm going and i'm going come on come on help me out here oh yeah she's not in my ear and if she is well then something's wrong right trouble. yeah it is trouble all right um jeff felmuth uh, what have you been up to since the last time you were on the show we don't have that long it was in atlanta come on um yeah a lot has happened just this past week, I've been on a trip uh, crisscrossing the United States. Uh, had one interesting incident. We landed on the North Complex in L.A. And the uh, where we park is as far south as you can get in L.A. And as we're crossing the final runway, I'm looking at the cabin and go, what is this guy doing? He's all over the place. <laughs> Airplane's kind of jerking around. Then I realized the tiller wheel is just spinning in his hand. It's disconnected. <laughs> mm, that's no so good we had just gotten off the runway on the parallel and uh he kept it straight down the taxiway until we got to the fbo then he stopped there and we called the fbo you guys come on out and tug us mm. the handle literally came off in his hand the whole wheel he's just that's why they call it a handle yeah so uh <laughs> that airplane got to stay there and we went to a hotel and we found a little par three golf course right by the hotel so we played golf all afternoon oh you made the most of it. Yeah. So we lemonade out of there. lemons. Yeah. Uh, Very cool. So that was so, that was so, my life. So when you found the grub screw that you tightened to put the handle back on, you now worked out the perfect way to get the day off and play a game of golf. You just no, but that's not what happened. Hmm. Is actually, it not? When the handle came off, there's actually a pin that goes through the handle and connects through. And it's got to be a, a unit because you can't put the pin in and put the handle back on. And you can't put the handle on and put the pin in. It's internal. Oh, Lord. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. So how complicated do you want to make these things? Been there for a week. Wow. Wow. So, well, I, well, I'm yeah, glad that uh, – so, you know, uh, about a, an hour before the show uh, – <laughs> Jeff uh, contacts me and says, hey, I can be on the show if you want, because uh, there were some things that he was going to kind of uh, help us um, sort out with the uh, 737 um, 
incident in Ethiopia, I believe. That oh, yeah, that's the big one. Covered and, and some other, because, um, you know, Jeff, the last airplane that he flew for American Airlines was the 7-3. So he's an expert, and uh, we always uh, appreciate his expertise. Can we do that now? Expertise. Uh, sure. Yeah, why not? Okay. Uh, for one thing, you were the, the one that had the depressurization, mm-hmm. yes, those gauges are from the original 7-3s, okay. and they are a pain in the neck to read. And I think They're it was awful. the same thing that we had in the 727 as well. Yeah, it's basically the same thing. Yeah, and it's, I always knew that if you ever lost both controllers, it, you were a single pilot. Mm-hmm. The other guy was going to be busy. Right. Uh, the uh, the TUI one, where they hit Toga, uh, if you hit it once, you get 2,000 feet per minute, just like on the 7.5 or 7.6. So they must have hit it twice. Uh, but even at 2,000 feet per minute, it's a pretty rapid climb, having yeah. done it. Only 400 feet to go. You know, they're at 2,600 yeah. going to three. And, uh, the, uh, and it can be pretty disorienting because, you know, all you're thinking at this point is because what do you do in the sim? Every time you hit targets, you know, flash 15, positive rate gear up. So it's like your muscle memory to just do that. Mm-hmm. I think it was Nick talking about, well, they should have just figured out where they were. But you're trained to do that. Flash 15, positive rate gear up on a Boeing. And it's just like automatic. Uh, that's part of it. Yeah. Uh, the EPGWS that didn't activate, it should have. There's oh. no, if it's not over the runway, if you're not at the approach end of the runway, it should activate. Mm. So if he's, yeah. Um, the Ethiopian one, this one was kind of interesting. Um, why did they pick ILS Yankee? I think it's because it was the first one they found. Because Y becomes before Z. Okay. That's the only thing I think. Yeah. Uh, they woke up. On a 7.3, if you hit a discontinuity, the autopilot does not connect, disconnect. It goes into heading hold. Okay. But why it disconnected for them, if they have the Yankee in there, it gets to that turn with no defined point to turn at mm-hmm. it's the end of the route because the missed approach procedure does not activate in the box. It doesn't become active unless you hit the toga buttons. So they hit the end of the route and the autopilot goes, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> and it just disconnects. Yeah. At, at the end of the route. Yeah. But not at a discontinuity. Just goes wow. to the heading hole. It seems to me like, I mean, in, in the airplane that I fly, if it comes to the end, it's just going to stay on and just keep on going the way it's going. Yeah. You would think that, but that's the only, I've never experienced hmm. this. I'm just guessing that's the way right. it might be. But I Oh, know. sure. You've never fallen asleep, huh? Like these guys, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> not that he's admitting. You forget, I flew single seat. I was terrified to fall asleep. <laughs> And your fir- uh, and your first officers were also terrified to fall asleep when you were a captain. Oh yeah, when I'm flying, they better be. <laughs> I hall boxes has a question. I hall boxes has a question. Uh, good looking, Captain Jeff. Thanks, I hall boxes. How's the citation uh, comparing to the Falcon? The, the citation is a much better airplane for two reasons, and it's the two motors. The Falcon and the citation are roughly the same size. They're within a couple hundred pounds for takeoff weight and landing weight. Uh, the citation has, uh, almost two, about a 1500 pounds of thrust more per each engine, which is significant at that same weight. Wow. It's probably why the thing does nine, two. Mm-hmm. 0.92 muck. Yeah. So wow. we cruise around it. We cruise around eight, six to save gas. Right. At 45. Yeah, nine, two. <laughs> That's slick. Yeah. Um, all right. Anything else? Uh, oh, and the MD-82 powerback video? Yeah. There is a Marshore there. I've done it. I never did. I've been in the airplane when the captain's done it. And there's a guy, and it's, they're weird signals. 
because you're going backwards mm-hmm. and it's uh but there's a guy there marshalling you so yeah it's it is an unnatural act to do that i'm sorry <laughs> i've yeah. only done it a couple times i'm glad i never had to do it yeah officially you um, never did it in the seven two no oh nope uh okay. i did uh, in the seven two once we did put them in reverse to kind of help the tug uh, get out of its um ruts yeah rut and it was like um it was boise and it was like um you know in snow and ice and uh it just it didn't have enough friction to get the thing rolling backwards so i think the captain helped a little bit with uh some reverse and uh it uh, got us moving backwards a little bit the key is don't touch the brakes yeah well uh, that brings to mind <laughs> my famous uh pushing back from the gate at the b concourse in atlanta and uh, the tug was like going, and all of a sudden it just goes, and we go over this bump. And then, of course, you know, the chalk was still in, apparently, or uh, at least one chalk, maybe both. And uh, as soon as it got on the other side of the chalk, the airplane had some momentum now, and it just kept going. And I still remember watching the tug and the tug driver holding onto the um, headset wire as as he stayed pretty much in one place and we were continuing to move backwards so the tow bar disconnected and i'm thinking okay what do we do now and 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 the only thing that anybody thought to say to the captain was don't hit the brakes don't slam on the brakes don't you know like be careful you know the no engine was running at this point so they couldn't use engine thrust to kind of arrest the backward motion but um uh, we kind of just let the energy, um, you know, dissipate, and then it uh, stopped. Yeah. Well, my one tow bar break was the same thing. I heard, I heard break, break, and I looked out, and the tow, the tow bar is sticking off the front of the tug about thirty yards in front of me, and I'm going backwards with yeah. nothing around. It's like, okay, yeah. it's going to be a little while. There's nothing back there. <laughs> it's like, huh? What do we do now? <laughs> Nobody ever. I, we hadn't heard this situation uh, discussed in uh, in the simulator or training for the airplane. We're like, uh, what do we do now? Why, All why we knew. Not hit the brakes. Mike is asking why no. It'll do well, a wheelie. Yeah, because the uh, 727 is very, very heavily um, biased toward the weight and balance toward the back of the airplane, and uh, in fact, that's why it was a requirement to have the air stairs down, which actually were a physical support. For the tail of the airplane, much like what is it, the 900 uh, Jeff that uh, has the pole that they yeah. stick under yes. uh, in the under the tail to keep it from tipping yes. backwards when they're loading and offloading. Tail tipping. So, do they right. not put anybody in the cockpit uh, when they're towing it without yes, a pilot? Yes, they do. They yeah. should. Well, what's he in there for if he can't hit the brakes? Well, no, well, you don't. You don't want to slam on the brakes. You just kind of very gently. Yeah. Okay. I guess that's very gently. That's what even I on mean. The yeah. that I was okay. on it. Would stand up. You have to just very, very gently do it and gotcha. just okay. be mindful that you could tip the thing on yeah, the tail. Yeah, yeah. Tail yes, Liz. I just said gently, gently. Gently, gently. Yes. Very true. Okay. Excellent. Um, any up next? Okay, Nick Camacho. How have you been, sir? Uh, I've been all right, except for my standard um, time zone situation which uh-huh. i screwed up again today but, uh, oh well you know we started the uh, show a little bit earlier than than we normally do well i know but you started it uh when you told me you were going to start it uh-huh. and i was not here like i told you <laughs> i was going to be here uh, okay well we um i i thought you know we we kind of discussed that before we started the recording and and i said well i thought he was going to be here but then we weren't sure and so we figured well hey if he shows up that's great if not then 
you know, sorry we missed you. Didn't we go through this with Rick at one point? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Rick, Rick has a lot of issues with time zones for sure. <laughs> yeah, but Rick's in like Rick's in like 500 different time zones. Yeah, I know. You're I, just, I am in Central and we always record in Eastern. You're and one I can never job. Straight. I you're know. one job and you screwed it up. I know. Um, but yeah, so I was late because I just finished taking my second AMP written. Oh, that's right. How did that go? I passed, so I'm oh, glad. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay. Well, that way. Good job. Go. Yeah. Good job, Nick. Um, well yeah. I will say this one was more challenging than the first one. The first one was the, so it's broken into three parts, right? General, airframe, and power plant. General um, contains mostly, it's, it's general, right? So it's just kind of generic knowledge that you need to work on stuff. It's a lot of like math, physics, um, privileges, basic electrical. Um, so all of that, you know, I had a pretty good background in, in addition, you know, working on the airplanes, but also in addition to that with my education background, getting into the airframe, there was some stuff that was really tight on, um, you know, the type of stuff that I'd worked on my airplane before. Then there was also stuff that I have never dealt with in my life, like pressurization systems, uh, environmental control systems, fire control systems, um, basically all the big airplane stuff and then the helicopter stuff. So there was uh, some starting from ground zero uh, on some of those topics, but managed to make it through it. <laughs> Excellent. So that was a, that was good. When does part three happen? Yeah. So is there a part three on this? Yeah. So the third test is the power plant. Okay. And when is so that going to happen? Well, I don't know. I, yeah. So I, I leave for California in two weeks and I'm um, trying to decide if I'm going to try to take it right before I leave. Mm hmm. Oh, wow. which would be aggressive, but it would yeah. also kind of motivate me to right. get after it. So we will see. Okay. That's cool. Well, you're two thirds of the way there then, huh? Yeah. Yep. For the written. For the written. Which, oh, and then you have to yeah. do a practical or something. Yeah. Two, eight, or three, ain't bad. Yep. So. Mm -hmm. Well, they take you to an airplane and say, okay, which bit's the power plant? Uh, they actually, they do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They don't ask you I what the power one. plan is, but they, you know, they, you do go to a testing area where they have actual uh, airplanes. Most of the time it's local AMP schools. So it's, they're supposed to be airworthy airplanes, but it doesn't seem like they ever are, but they will, they'll walk you up to it and they'll, um, you know, they'll have you identify things. Like I've talked to guys who um, I'm trying to think some of the stuff that was on their practicals, they had to uh, identify uh, and describe how they would repair an oil leak on an engine. So they had to inspect the engine and find the oil leak and then explain how they'd repair it. They can give you uh, safety wiring tasks, turnbuckle, like turnbuckle safety wiring tasks, hardware safety wiring tasks. They could give you like a riveting task. Um, wow. So it all is, is very practical and very... Uh, Brilliant. Yeah, it does sound riveting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll take you out to a DC three. <laughs> that yeah. would be good because uh, I've been around those. Uh, my biggest fear is like walking up, walking up to a jet engine and then being like, "All right, tell me about this." And I'm like, no, "I don't know." You know, in school when I was in the very brief time I was an Arrow, we had shirts that were like um, cartoonized or caricaturized the four phases of the jet engine, mm -hmm. the suck, squeeze, bang, blow shirts. And uh, that's about the extent of my knowledge. Of that's the only thing I would say there's during a, my practice. There's a suck phase, a squeeze phase, a bang phase, and a blow phase. I mean, don't well, we all 10 know? Over that I left <laughs> no, we all like the blow phase. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right. So, Nick, if you want to work on a jet, there's a C-750 over at Textron that I left there two weeks ago. Oh, yeah? <laughs> in Wichita or at the... At Wichita. Still there? As, I think so, yeah. Oh. I haven't checked. But Sounds it was pretty last serious. Night, a couple days ago. Hmm. Oh, yeah. One airspeed indicator said I was uh, in the hook, and the other one said I was 10 knots above the hook. Man, I'm not no. sure. What's 10 knots between friends? I don't know yeah. if I'd hire Colonel Jeff to be a pilot. So I, I met him on a maintenance situation. Mm-hmm. He opened the show by talking about a maintenance situation. Mm-hmm. And now he's left an airplane here with a maintenance situation. <laughs> and there seem to be two things associated with all these events. There are maintenance situations and there's Colonel Jeff. We would ask the situ- uh, the question, um, do you have a snake in your bag or something? You know, like I think that's the term that we use. I can used. say that I've never had any really severe emergency since I left the military. Oh, now yeah. you've done it. Yeah. Oh, God. I wouldn't have said that. That's a curse. We wait with bated breath for the next show. And we'll have you on after your next significant. (laughs) After my accident? Accident. (laughs) Nick Anderson. Nick Anderson, finally. Um, Yes. uh, We're we're quite busy between between this show and the last. Yeah, I had a little bit going on. Uh, So I don't mind being busy. It's it's great. But. you know, the United Kingdom is not an ideal place to go for long drives. Um, so I had a while at home, uh, had a great bowls match on Tuesday. Um, but the big event really was heading off uh, to say goodbye to our lovely friend, Ivor, um, who was um, uh, buried. Well, he wasn't buried, actually. He was cremated on... Um, Friday, Friday the 26th. So uh, uh, Neville Bounds was uh, up there um, from PTUK, and uh, we got together um, at the uh, Pentrabach in uh, crematorium in uh, Rostellan. And um, it was very nice to uh, meet his friends and family, had school friends there, had work colleagues, people uh, who knew him very well, people who were just passing acquaintances, which I suppose I would be in the category of, even though we uh, had, you know, met him and uh, communicated with him a great deal. Uh, you know, we we sort of hung back a little bit because, uh, you know, the family have to take first place. But it was a very nice uh, um, service. And uh, the lady who was presiding over there had, taken a lot of time to uh, find out about uh, Ivor's background and uh, had some great quotes from him. Uh, and um, then we uh, sort of got together afterwards um, at a very nice um, uh, place in Oswestry, uh, where, which was, in fact, in an old uh, railway shed. It was uh, beautifully uh, done out. It was kind of a restaurant and bar. And uh, we all chatted about Ivor and the things we knew about him and uh, uh, got together with uh, Kirsty, his lovely wife. They had um, photographs of uh, Ivor in his various um, uh, adventures through his life, which was brilliant. And one of the nice things they did was to put out little um, notepads on all the tables so we could all write some of our memories down. And... Uh, I remember I messaged you, Jeff, and said, uh, how does uh, Ivor 
um, used to finish his um, little monologues that he used to write for us. And so uh, we said, uh, Ivy used to write in our podcast and would end by saying, uh, love and kisses from Ivor. Or uh, so nighty night from Ivor. I love you all, some more than others, and with good reason. <laughs> and uh, he often used to call himself Tarquin. I never quite found out the reason for that, but he used to sign off as Tata from Tarquin. And uh, then another favorite was chocolate biscuits and marshmallows, Ivor. <laughs> and um, we filled out a couple of these, so uh, I ended by writing, uh, Ivor, what a gem of a man, irreverent, joyous, and full of life. He made so many of us titter, giggle, laugh, and roll around on the floor with his many monologues. A true friend to his many fans on the APG podcast. So it was a pleasure to be there um, with uh, young Nev and uh, sort of represent the show and say goodbye to our lovely friend Ivor, who passed away in, you know, a very sudden um, manner, um, you know, very sadly. He had a heart attack and passed very quickly. Yeah. And there was little to be done to save him. So it was, you know, he's, and he was not an old chap, you know, he, probably a couple of years younger than me. So uh, absolutely. Um, it was a sad moment. But, you know, uh, you know, we it's all part of the great circle of life, isn't yeah. it? So, and the, the entire APG community really appreciates and thanks you and Nev for, you know, being up there to represent the aviation community, uh, podcasting community. Thanks very much. Yeah, I, I hope someone pitches up to my funeral. There. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> wouldn't have thought so. Uh, and I wouldn't blame you at all. Anyway, so that has really been the, the biggest event uh, during the week. And, um, you know, um, his lovely wife uh, did say that uh, she would like to sort of find out more about the community and perhaps, uh, um, you know, stay part of it. Mm -hmm. So if you do see Tricia, and I discovered that she Kirsty, Kirsty. Um, Kirsty? is a private pilot. Okay. Oh. Uh, so she... Um, she did her license uh, and did about 40 hours, but she's oh. not current, but uh, uh -huh. she has a love of flying. And um, yeah, so I think that would be very good. If well, if she's we watching could, us right uh, now, hey, uh, welcome aboard. And uh, we look forward to you becoming a, a bigger part of our community. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kirsty and um, her son, Rob, and his new wife, uh, Katie, they were there um so kirsty um i don't know if you if you do f i i left our card so if you are listening it was lovely to meet you and um it was a wonderful send-off and we'd of course love to uh, support you and uh would welcome you in op with open arms to our community kirsty yes uh, cover art. Does Nick want to talk about cover art? Okay. Hey, I'm going to have to just pause for a moment. I do apologize okay. because um, uh, we're going to do the cover art next. Um, unless you want to do it in my absence, that's fine too. Um, I have a, a lawn service guy out there right now that I have to really talk to okay, about coordinating something here. So um, yeah, if you want to do the uh, cover art while I'm gone, that's fine. If not, uh, we'll do it when I get back. Hopefully this won't take very long. Uh, sorry, I might as well do the cover art because it's been, been sitting here twiddling our thumbs. 
Um, so uh, the I was actually on the show, I think, where we were talking about what a CAD, and I'm trying to think. Oh, it was to do with the ejector that, seats. Yeah, That's the right. Component. There it was. An eject, can't hear you, Liz. She popped she, in there for a second. N- Nigel oh. sent in an article on uh, Martin Baker and CADs. That's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. What does CAD stand for again? Cartridge activated something. Device. Well done. The ones that weren't being um, properly maintained by Martin Baker. So um, Jeff made the suggestion of. Uh, Egads, what a CAD. So, uh, and of course, uh, I, I was making the joke during the show about CADs and bounders. So, uh, because it's probably, I won't say exclusively, but better known in uh, the United Kingdom uh, compared with our cousins over the pond, uh, you, you don't have many bounders over there, do you? No. Uh, no. I think we could say exclusively <laughs> on the show afterwards when we were talking about it. There was absolutely only, only the UK people knew what that meant, or the yeah, so Commonwealth I, people knew what that meant. I I got the dictionary out and put the dictionary definitions of there, and uh, then I asked Jeff to do his um, take a selfie in his best moustache twiddling um, uh, dishonourable <laughs> man <laughs> look like- on his face, and I waited and waited, and eventually I thought, well. You know, there's a five-hour time difference. By the time he gets to this, it's going to be too late for me to do this artwork. So I uh, took a selfie of myself. And uh, so we've got a caddish-looking leather-jacketed pilot, and I just needed a decent cockpit, and the F-35 just happened to pop up, so that's good. So uh, in an F-35 sitting on a Marlit Baker ejector seat, so there's the link. And um, it adds what a cab was to show title, or in fact, Jeff used EGAD, what a CAD. Uh, they're interchangeable. You can have singular or plural, it means the same. And um, for fun, we put the uh, show number in there uh, on one of the warnings on the uh, side of the cockpit. And also APG in there. You'll find canopy has been misspelt where on one of those words. Uh, and we managed to get the logo into the ejector seat sign, so yeah. uh, that helped out as well. So there you go. That was uh, last week's cover art. Nice stash. <laughs> yes, actually. I like the I monocle looks the good. Tash. Yeah, I thought so too. And uh, I would wear one, actually, because, uh, you know, if one eye is weaker than the other, you can just correct one eye. You don't have to have a whole pair of glasses. I think it would look good. No, I, I got that from... Uh, a f- chap with a very fine moustache uh, and uh, and copied his moustache stuck it on myself. Because one thing my moustache doesn't do is it doesn't grow long well and it doesn't come out to the sides well. So, um, I thought you I've stole always... the one from Robin Holtz. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, you are. He had a, he had a fantastic moustache. I love oh, it. Yeah. yeah, his uh, his soup strainer was very good indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And I love I the story of uh, of sort of how he got away with it all that time in uh, Vietnam until he got home. <laughs> yeah. He was given the job as commandant of the academy or I something. Always, and, I uh, always found that to be absolutely amazing from his history in Vietnam that he becomes the commandant of cadets at the academy. Yeah, and, I thought it was brilliant. I mean, just the opposite of what you would think. But, yes, uh, yes, very true. Quite but, the leader. Uh, 
What? What? Yeah. What? Uh, an inspirational leader whose uh, his pilots loved him dearly, and uh, you know he turned that uh, wing completely around from the problems they were having. So I, I, it was a great story to be able to relate, and uh, yeah. I, you know, I felt enormous connection with him. Uh, you know, he he would have been my kind of a boss. I would have loved to have worked for him. I served with a lot of guys who were in that unit in Vietnam who were, you know, senior to me, of course, because I wasn't over there. But uh, and they had just the stories of, you know, the bar and the hooches and the camaraderie. And um, I think I was sharing earlier about uh, the story I was telling about Pardo's push where I got to meet Bob Pardo. And, you know, their concern wasn't about how many MIGs they shot down that day. Their Their concern was about. You know, where was Robin's wingman who had gotten shot down at the beginning of the engagement? Yeah, and uh, that was just the way they did things. So. Absolutely, yeah, very much so. And uh, I, I love the fact that he was actually in some incredibly famous uh, squadrons. He flew for the Hat and the Ring bunch. Mm -hmm. He uh, commanded Number One Squadron of the Royal Air Force, and that, that one you know, I didn't know about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well. You know, number one squadron uh, started off in the 1870s, I think, 1878, as a as a balloon unit. So you know, it was literally well, your the, the first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's how they got the idea for the Harrier. You know, it just goes up and down. That's all it ever did, really. Yeah. But uh, no, Robin Owls, what a character! Yeah, great man. Um, yeah. So you know, this uh, ideal thing for a, a plane tail. Uh, mm -hmm. Unlike the ones I do about myself, which uh, I'm doing another one right now. So sorry oh, about that. I love Everybody. your logbook stories, Nick. I, I can, I can so relate to those. <laughs> <laughs> well, brilliant. I, I'm very glad bar, you do. Thanks be heard for that. There. <laughs> yeah. Four IPs walk into a bar. Yeah, nothing to be said. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Right. So fill Jeff, me in. We've done it. And, fill me uh, in. Uh, we filled we... in. Okay. You did. We did the cover art. You did the cover art. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so Good. You can do coffee fun now. Yep. Get all the feedback done. Okay. You just need the coffee bar fun now, and oh, then okay. we can move on to. Feedback. All right. Let's do the uh, coffee bar fund, as uh, Nick likes to call it. And uh, here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea, I love the APG community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. I should have asked uh, Colonel Jeff to join me. He is also a singer, sings in his choir at his church. Um, but it, was been, it, would have been, it would have been horrible, though, because the latency is just, yeah, it's not good. Anywho, uh, the Coffee Fund is your way to support the show financially. And a couple of different ways to do it. One is the OG, the original uh, Coffee Fund classic method uh, via PayPal. You can make uh, mostly used for one time or every once in a while kind of donations. And since the last episode, we got a very, very nice, generous uh, contribution from Samuel Dawson. Thank you, Samuel, for, uh, for that. And we do appreciate that. And we also have some folks that use it for recurring uh, contributions as well. However, the bulk of the po folks, folks, uh, the bulk of the folks that uh, do a recurring style of uh, contribution to the show uh, as, uh, are patrons of the show via Patreon. 
patreon.com slash airline pilot guy. Uh, no new patrons this week, but we got a big group of really, really good supportive people uh, that are patrons of the show. Digests. And uh, yeah, yeah. Good point, Liz. You're missing all those daily digests that I've just started putting out. I think I have done, how many now? Four or so? Um, And I'm trying to do them every day, but, you know, I probably won't do one today, of course, because we're recording the show. But, uh, yeah, if you want to check it out and kind of hear some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff happening with with the show. Uh, please consider becoming a patron of the show. And uh, again, uh, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee for more information about the Coffee Bar Club. Don't know where Macho Camacho went, but... Uh-oh. We're, we have a, a missing man. Missing man. Camacho's down. Okay. Well, we're hoping that he'll be able to come back. Yep. And uh, in the Someone meantime... Someone needs to go back for him. Yeah, somebody... <laughs> we somebody never can, leave a man oh, behind. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Yay. Hey. He, just, he just wanted to be above Captain Nick. That's all it was. Ah, <laughs> yes. Well, you know, that's all he has enough. to do is like drag it. <laughs> all right. Um, now feedback. I think would, pardon me? Feedback time. Yep. Feedback time. Here we go. Captain, incoming message. All right, we plan on doing a bunch of it on today's show, and I guess we should start off. You know what? I'm going to skip the first one so that I'm able to get the video associated with that one um, ready while we discuss item four. Uh, Adam sent in this. Um, I came across this article below about BAE Systems Tempest Jet in development and targeted for pushback in 2027. Sporting ambition to pilot-based AI, where Receptor, or is that Al? Every time I see AI, I have to admit, it looks like Al to me. <laughs> I'm thinking, why is Al, Captain Al is everywhere. Same thing. Um, oh, same thing? Artificial intelligence? No, that would be no intelligence, Liz. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Al, we love you. You're a very intelligent man. A lot, a lot smarter than I am, for sure. Uh, anyway, so let me start this sentence over again. Sporting ambition of pilot-based AI, where receptors in the helmet build a profile of each pilot to assist decision-making and possibly reduce reaction time or recovering G-lock. Uh, G-induced loss of consciousness seems revolutionary. Further applications where it would be the lead aircraft in in a formation with otherwise unmanned aircraft is once again set to shift the approach to combat hugely. I'd love to know your thoughts on this and other applications that you think would be beneficial using this sort of technology. Also, if your aircraft made decisions and flew itself in your style from an AI based on you, what would it do? Steph, I'm guessing yours would decide to stop flying and descend on a parachute system instead, like a few smaller aircraft. <laughs> they already <laughs> invented that. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, anyway, he gave us a link to the article uh, from the bbc.co.uk, and he says, wishing you all clear skies, tailwinds, and the good stuff that goes with it. Oh, I like that. Kind regards, Adam. And uh, again, the article to which he uh, was referring is uh, a mind-reading combat jet for the future from BBC News. And uh, I think Liz was showing some of the pictures um, out of the uh, story. Um, During World War II, Spitfire pilots described their plane as so responsive it felt like an extension of their limbs. I could use one of those. Um, Fighter pilots of the 2030s, however, will have an even closer relationship with their fighter jet. And it will read their minds. I don't. How does it 
how does it do that? That's what was the movie with Clint Eastwood about um, the Russian fighter that, that he had to think in Russian to make oh, it yeah. fly. Oh. Uh, I forgot what that was. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So hey, this is this is not a new idea then. Apparently, Firefox or something. Yes, you know, yeah, might, yeah. I think you're right. That's it. Good job. Um, yeah, one feature will be an artificial intelligence tool to assist the human pilot when they are overwhelmed or under extreme stress. Sensors in the pilot's helmet will monitor brain signals and other medical data. So over successive flights, the AI will amass a huge biometric and psychometric information database. This library of the pilot's unique characteristics means that the onboard AI will be able to step in and assist if the sensors indicate that they may need help. For example, if the AI could take over if the pilot loses consciousness due to high gravity forces. Um, yeah, so uh, it's a good thing here. We have uh, two former uh, fighter pilots that uh, you know might be a little familiar with how this whole thing could possibly help a uh, fighter pilot. Dated fighter pilots. <laughs> I think I think Lieutenant Colonel just giggling as I am because I'm thinking there was absolutely nothing even in the pipeline when I was uh, flying yeah, that really. would have even vaguely resembled this. So all I can do is try and imagine what's going to go wrong because you know it, it it was bad enough when Airbus came out with fly by wire and everyone started saying what's it doing now and oh look it's doing it again. Everyone trying to work out what the airplane was doing. Can you imagine what would happen if your aircraft started interpreting what you were thinking and started doing things for you? Because you've no, you've made no direct input. You really would have, on occasions, absolutely no idea what it was doing or why it was doing it. And I'm trying to work out how on earth you would correctly assume that the aircraft was doing what you wanted it to, mm-hmm. what it ought to do, uh, when you know you really have no idea, it's, and, and the same would apply to your, uh, you know, automatic wingman, which is I think not a bad idea at all to have these, because you know all of a sudden you've got double the missile load and an aircraft that can pull, uh, you know, airframe limits of G without no one with no pilot in there to to go unconscious, so you you could send it out ahead of you into a merge and let it loose uh, while you hung back and picked off, <laughs> hung back safely and picked off the loose ones that popped out of the furball. Uh, I can see that sort of working, but um, there, there is it, too much time has gone uh, and too much technology has um, been created for me to even guess how this is going to work, I'm afraid. I'm well, going to have to take it back. I think to vote that I-Hall gets kicked out. I'm, I'm a little hurt. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> These two are exactly the reason why we are now in dire need for AI. Are they? Not? <laughs> <laughs> well, he does make a good point. Yeah. Well, here's yeah. the real question: Which version of English is it going to be speaking? British, Canadian, American, Australian, or New Zealand? Well, it depends what you think. What version you think? Yeah, what do you I think? Yeah. Of Queen's yeah. English. I mean, what if you get you know you and Al? Or Pip, y'all speak a different dialect. <laughs> mm-hmm. different yeah, but do we think in the same dialect? That's the other thing. I mean, how does yeah. it interpret what you actually want it to do? Uh, and if you get frightened and your brain starts going, well, no, uh, you know, you might be able to overcome that. <laughs> but if all of a sudden your your automatic wingman turns around and runs away, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> you come, come back, you coward. <laughs> 
I mean, it, it's a nice idea, but we are all so, I mean, even in the same airplane, we all fly it so differently, you know, and you're not always flying the same tail number. So it would have to adapt to, to each pilot. Mm-hmm. It, it would have, I can't imagine the complications of it. Yeah. No. I I tend to agree. I, I'm sure it will have some applications, but for heaven's sake, we, I mean, we we've got voice control now, which can be a, a great thing. But uh, you know, if you're continually having to rethink a set of instructions for your aircraft because it's misinterpreted the last go, you know, I'm just trying to wonder how reliable it would be. How many times in have you held a theory? <laughs> well, here, here's what I'm thinking. How many times, be honest, that you go and open up the refrigerator and you, you the door's open and you're just staring at the shelves because you're trying to recall exactly what it was that you were opening the refrigerator for and looking for. Because you opened the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so now apply that into the cockpit. Uh, okay, what? What was I going to well, do again? What am I hopefully, doing? <laughs> if it was clever enough, it would tell you. <laughs> oh yeah, and and some you, you forgot what you're here for. It's that beer over there. That beer right there. That yeah. mustard. Yeah, crazy. Well, we'll see. I guess if this is uh, well, something I, that is I, a reality. I'm impressed that they're even investigating this avenue because mm-hmm. you know there an awful lot of us out here are skeptics. Yeah, having seen fancy bits of kit, they've tried to put in fighters come to grief in the past. Well, so. Nick, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the drone wingman. I mean, the AI needs to be there. It's, I think it's probably in both. I think it's, well, it's you know, and to talking there. to each other. They're going to have to know what to do. And they're, you know, they're going to have to figure out and sort. There's some sort of that out there, but, you know, get that fixed before you try putting it in my cockpit. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. there, there actually is a loyal wingman program in the States also. Yes. Uh, yep. Kratos yep. Is Australia are developing one, which is the uh, same concept, except I don't think they have the yeah um, focus on AI that this airplane has. But so it, it it's going to be fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think it'll probably, uh, in some aspects, it'll probably be very good. You know, when we talk about AI, we don't, I don't really think it's necessarily copying our brain and making. Uh, decisions like that. I think it's following algorithms which will program. It will be able to recognize enemy aircraft from its emissions and its outline and from the radar um, returns we're getting f- from it. Um, it will be able to uh, work out attack profiles. It'll be able to make all sorts of clever decisions like that. So I think if you threw these into a, a fight, as long as I wasn't in there and it didn't have to make sure... That I got shot by accident. Um, I think it it could be very useful. Um, it, it would certainly take the load off, wouldn't it? If you had someone else yeah. in there just doing all this winding yeah. twenty g turns, which we would struggle with. Uh, you think twenty g? <laughs> okay, I, I was bad enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I discovered the other day that, you know, most World War II fighters, because they didn't have G meters, they were regularly pulling 12 and 14 G. Wow. Those machines. Without the aid Incredible. of G suits and all yeah, that. Yeah, because yeah. most of it was snap turns. Right, momentary. Uh, not sustained, but... Uh, yeah. Wow. All right. Well, interesting. Thank you again, Adam, for pointing us to that BBC article about AI or Al, your choice. And... <laughs> Uh, that's what they call the AI. 
And um, okay, was no, that was Adam, right? Yeah, but this is—is is this the same Adam? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Well, um, maybe the same Adam, maybe a different one. Yeah, Liz is checking right now, uh, but uh, this one sent us a, a link, a, a YouTube video link. Uh, Air oh, Force. Yeah, it is. It's Adam oh, it Catling. Is. It is Adam, Adam Catling. Okay, same Adam. Uh, Air Force versus Navy landings. And a few weeks back in one of Nick's plane tales, he mentioned receiving feedback about his landings on the F-18 when he was doing his conversion training down under. It reminded me of a Navy versus Air Force landing video I'd seen a while ago. And tonight it popped up on my feed, so I wanted to share it with you. So we are in turn going to share it with everybody watching the show. And of course, you're listening to the audio podcast. You'll have to go to the show notes to, to find the link. But if you're watching the video, here we go. Look at that. Rolled it on. Big Air Force. Isn't that nice? Oh. Here's the Navy. This is real men land. <laughs> Bam! <laughs> Take that, <laughs> runway. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that. <laughs> Let's see that again. I'm going to turn the sound off, though, this time. Okay, there's the uh, Air Force uh, Viper. Yeah. Coming in and just very oh, oh touchy feely yeah yeah that's nice you know don't, don't muss my hair you don't want to roll those wheels too fast but here's Here the name again uh, <laughs> damn landing my airbus in debt the last I love that that is so cool oh man um, so your thoughts. Any? <laughs> That's like why AI is going to be a problem. Here. Speechless. <laughs> we have I no like thoughts. long runways and cables that roll out a long way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I like the idea of planting it on, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I could do both. That was the nice thing. I had an option. So mm-hmm. uh, I didn't have to do one or the other. And uh, if I felt like, if I, yeah, you're right. If I had a big long runway, I could, you know, Perhaps tweak a little bit more alpha, give a touch of power just to cushion on and squeak one on. But if I just wanted to get to the bar, <laughs> I'd bang it in. The airspeed would instantly drop 10 knots. I'd be off at the first turn off, you know, park the jet out in the bar, you know, crack the first beer. Always tastes good, that first beer. And he's walking, uh, as he's walking away from the airplane, the uh, the, the uh, technicians are, you know, there with the fire extinguishers, you know, yeah, posing right. out the brakes. Yeah, they're pumping up the oleos, <laughs> <laughs> fixing the hydraulic leaks. <laughs> Swarming the jet. And all the spillage. <laughs> yeah. Way um, to go. Yeah. Well, thanks, Adam, for, uh, for giving no, us very that funny. Um, we have some audio feedback from Brian, passenger Brian, uh, Brian Coleman, uh, contributing editor and co-host of uh, Airplane Geeks and host of The Journey is the Reward. And uh, here we go. We're going to play this. I'm not even sure if I've listened to this. So let's let's uh, see what he uh, is asking us about. Hi, Captain Jeff and crew. I had two questions for you this week. That's better. One, I think I've noticed that Captain Jeff is growing a bit whiter in the AP Geographic. Is this my eyes going, or did the graphic update to reflect the captain's advanced age? Just wondering. (laughs) My other question is for Captain Nick. I just returned from a trip to Johannesburg, 
and was wondering about high-altitude airport flying, in particular Johannesburg. Is there anything special that you have to do or to plan for with such high altitude? The airport is sitting at about 5,700 feet. For comparative purposes, Denver's at about 5,200 feet. So really, does the additional 500 feet make a difference? Is there even a difference between landing at an airport at 5,000 feet versus one at sea level? Also, I guess I'm wondering if there are any other high-altitude airports which you've flown in and out of. I think Captain Rick might have flown into some high-altitude airports in South America, but I have no idea what they might compare to in feet and altitude. Anyway, just wondering if there's anything special that needs to be accounted for at these airports. Remember, the journey is the reward. Fly safely, Brian. Nice little plug for his uh, his new podcast. Um, yeah, all I'll say is high altitude does make a pretty big difference, and that's all I'm going to say. And you're I'm not let talking about the gray hair, eh? Every, oh well, yeah. Okay, I'll I'll address the first question that he had. Yeah, the gray hair. <laughs> I know I got so much flack from people, you know, saying, "Oh, that's a cute avatar." When was that? Like 30 years ago. Yeah, it uh, looks more like Nick Camacho now. Yeah. So without the beard. Uh, but uh, so I thought, you know what? Okay. Uh, so I, that's why I contacted um, Jim Mercado and I said, could you alter it a little bit to, uh, you know, reflect my current hair coif color? So he did that. So it's Of course, you could be like a lot of people nowadays and just put that hairspray, you know, dye your hair pink, no. green, Ooh, you know, yeah. different color each week. That would, that whatever mood I'm in. No, I'm not going to do that. Like a mood ring. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you can both do that. Oh, Captain yeah. Did. I don't I don't think you're... Uh, uh, I already that. have. I've, I've put white in <laughs> it. Can you see? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just feel better. <laughs> so maybe after I retire, I can, you know, put some pink in my hair or something. Hey, I'm just more worried about keeping it than what color it is. <laughs> ah, yes. yeah, you got to have some to color it, right? Of course, there's yeah, wigs. Yeah. You can start going the wig route, right? Um, that's enough talking about that stuff. Um, high altitude airports. Um, uh, okay, go. Whoever wants to go. Uh, well, there's not a lot of difference <laughs> between 5,200 and 5,700. So you wouldn't really notice that. But sea level to 5,000, yeah, that's quite a density altitude variation. And uh, we would have a special section uh, when we're in our training notes when we go in the high altitude airfields to cover. And I would, you know, particularly if I had an FO who hadn't done one recently or at all, I would um, brief the differences. So, um, you know, when you're flying around at 5,000 feet, the aircraft is going to stall a bit faster. Uh, so you need to keep your speed up. Um, and also, uh, you know, you've got more inertia uh, for, you know, the same amount of airspeed. So and, and it is significant. So you're going to have a longer landing run. You're going to have hotter brakes, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, the airplane will need just a just a smidge of an earlier flare because you've got slightly more inertia. So you just take that into account uh, when you're doing it. And for the takeoffs, yeah, I we had a standard extra bit to add onto the PA, which uh, explained why the the takeoff roll was going to be extended because um, we would have to get a higher speed, uh, higher ground speed to get the same airspeed so that we would uh, lift off safely. We had to be careful not to over-rotate the 
tires because if we got the ground speed too high the tire rotation speed would exceed the limits and uh you know you'd have to write off all the wheels on the airplane which was extremely expensive because they had exceeded the limits so now you wouldn't find out about it probably till you got to um, you know, the next landing and the engineers took a look at it and they, the, the computers would flag up if you've oversped the wheels during the takeoff run, acquiring your flying speed. And the margin wasn't great. Uh, you know, it was only, only small. Uh, in addition, we'd often, uh, out of Joburg, use a, a different flap setting, which used to have problems uh, in the fact that People, the aircraft had relatively slow acceleration compared with a low altitude airfield. And people used to want to do the same amount of flat movements that they were used to in time. You know, we've been airborne now for 15 seconds. We ought to be moving the flaps. We, we seem to be sitting here doing nothing. And they, they would often um, call for a flap when it wasn't yet necessary because we only had one stage of flap to bring up and then uh, people used to get all, themselves into all sorts of trouble um, calling for flaps too early. Uh, so there, there are differences. Um, um, the other place we used to go to, which was fairly high, was Nairobi or, or Nairobi, as I used to like to call it. Um, <laughs> and uh, so both those efforts, but... You're right. Rick um, has been to airfields even higher than that. And I don't know about you, uh, Colonel Jeff, whether you have a lot of high altitude airfield experience. Yes. Mexico City is the one that comes to mind. Uh, first time there was, uh, you know, the 7300, like I've said before, had a fast approach speed. But you're looking, your true airspeed is significantly higher. And, I mean, you're in the flare doing like 180 true. Because of the, because you're up about 7,500 feet almost, um, and uh, it makes for a really long. I mean, they have a 13,000 foot long runway for a reason, and because uh, <laughs> yeah. you need it. Um, Aspen is the one I've been to uh, in the in the charter business. It's 8,000 feet, and you're there on a hot summer day, and the pressure altitude can be approaching 10. I mean, I was at the Rifle, oh. which is not quite 6,000 feet. But it was 95 degrees outside, so the pressure altitude was actually 9,000 feet. So uh, the engines don't perform as well because it's thinner air. Your true airspeed needs to be higher to get the same amount of lift or the same amount of uh, uh, braking action. Yeah, it's a lot more braking action. Like you said, the flare's got to be sooner. Rotation's got to be slower. And you're waiting forever to pull up the flaps. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think... For me, I, I think the highest I've ever been is somewhere in the U.S., uh, you know, the Southwest, um, El Paso and Tucson, Arizona, Denver, et cetera. Um, nothing much higher than that. But um, I think that uh, Brian was uh, alluding to Miami Rick and uh, the one that he always talks about flying into and out of Quito. Um, and uh, that one uh, the uh, the new airport, 9,228 feet. That's pretty high up there. And I did a quick search online, and uh, the highest uh, airport, civilian airport elevation in the world is uh, serves Dushing County and the Garzi, Garza Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture, Prefecture of <laughs> Sichuan Province in China. Sichuan Province in China. And I'll probably have to... 
Yeah, thank you. <laughs> wow. I mean, I don't think anybody could do any better than that. Um, anyway, 4,411 meters above sea level, and that works out to be 14,472 feet. That's pretty high up Wow. There. You'd need oxygen to take just to take off. I know. Just to walk up the air stairs, you'd need oxygen. And I think the <laughs> you find the La Paz, which is like at the thirteen thousand feet. Yeah, that, you and know, I was thinking that that was pretty. pretty did walk around with an oxygen bottle. Oh my gosh! You could lay over there. Wow. Um, Good lord. And keto was a requirement. We did that in the sim. If you were on the seven five, it was required training wow. to do the approach in the, the old keto airport. Let's see. Uh, Ihal Boxes likes to practice manual level offs at 20,000 plus feet whenever given the opportunity to remind myself about the high altitude handling characteristics of the aircraft. Yeah, that's very important uh, and something that we don't really do very often. Uh, and that's, yeah, it definitely handles much differently um, as it gets higher up in, in the thinner air, for sure. Anyway. All right. Um, anything else to add or subtract to that one? Uh, you know, I think the only thing I'll add, I, mm -hmm. I think, uh, Brian is more of a kerosene burner like you guys, but the other significant aspect of, uh, altitude, uh, impact, right. Density altitude, density altitude is what everyone's always concerned about. Cause that's kind of more indicative of how the airplane's going to, um, perform yeah. and he was asking about 5200 versus 5700 feet mm -hmm. you know it'd be it, it would not be at all unusual that you could take off from an airport at 5200 feet that's hot and fly to an airport that's 5700 feet but cool temperature yeah and uh the performance of the airplane will actually be inverse of what you expect because of the impact of the uh temperature temperature and you flying to different weather systems mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing is with piston engines you also have to account for, um, since everything is manually, uh, fuel is manually metered and you are setting the mixture yourself, um, there's an additional step once you start operating up high, which is you have to, down around sea level, airplanes are all set up to take off at full rich um, mixture settings at full power. So the, more, the most fuel to air The mixture. most fuel, yep, exactly. Okay. And so you have a mixture knob, right, that you can pull out or push in that basically meters how much fuel is going into the engine. And then your throttle is basically metering, you know, kind of how much air or how much air fuel mixture is going in. And as you go up in altitude, um, you're still putting the same amount of fuel in your um, intake. But when the air density starts coming down, you're putting fewer air molecules, molecules per fuel molecule. So you have to be mindful of that and you have to start, you know, taking off, um, with reduced mixture settings to get uh, maximum power and stuff like that. Interesting. I was just going to call the FAA and tell them, hey, he passed his power plant. Um, <laughs> right there with that answer. Nice job. <laughs> um, okay, excellent. Well, you know, speaking of altitudes and Brian uh, Coleman, he also sent us uh, some email feedback. He says, I was recently on a flight to Hawaii supporting my project, The Journey is the Reward, and while watching the flight map, I noticed something different. I was hoping you might be able to add your thoughts and answer this question as to what was going on. The altitude displayed on the map, okay, these are these displays, I guess, on your entertainment system, uh, kept, uh, kept changing when we were in the cruise phase of flight. It would vary 
from 36,016 feet to 36,019 feet, and all numbers in between for about 10 minutes. Then from 36,019 to 36,042 feet, and then all numbers in between. And then it would creep up another 20 or so feet and do it again for another 10 minutes or so. I watched this happen for most of the flight, and we finally topped out at 36,356. Do you have any clue as to why this would happen? I know Captain Nick will say it's because I was on a Boeing 737, but I don't think that to be true. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so he he asks... the pilots were asleep. Um, he asks these questions next. Shouldn't the autopilot have kept us more level? Uh, could it have been from outside air pressure change? Mm. Uh, were the pilots hand flying? Mm, no. Uh, did the equipment need to be adjusted? That's what she said. Uh, was it uh, the variation in the ocean waves? <laughs> that's the one. Yeah, he, uh, he has a little smiley face there. I think he, under- yeah. he knows that that's a dumb question. Um, just no one dumb questions. Oh, there, that's right. There's no dumb, que- no, there are dumb questions here. Liz. Uh, just wondering <laughs> and even dumber answers. <laughs> Very uh, true. Just wondering what could have caused the erratic, but constant creep in our altitude. Um, so, um, what, what say we, Colonel Jeff had a light bulb over his head. Yeah. Okay. Colonel Jeff, what do you think? It's GPS. You're flying at a constant altimeter setting 2992 the airplane maintains the same pressure altitude but your actual height above the ground is changing and the air show is what that thing is called is running off your gps system or your inertial nav system that's where it's getting its height from so it's going to vary Right. So that we call that, what, the stater, standard datum or datum plane? Yes. So when we go above, uh, typically, I think in most places, what, what are you laughing about? <laughs> People walking back and forth from their seats to the lab and back. And they, thank you, Daniel. That's the actual real answer. No, that's not the answer. Um, but it's a funny one. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, as, as you said, most I think most places around the world, it's uh, above 18,000 feet uh, pressure altitude. Um, everybody sets a. It's not most places. It's very few. Oh, really? Okay. See, so you, you see how much international experience I have. So, um, but anyway, here in the U.S., I can talk for that or speak to that. Above eighteen thousand feet, we set in two nine nine two inches of mercury, or was it ten thirteen? Um, yep. Hectopascals or whatever they call that. Uh, that that weird stuff that you guys do uh, over yeah. there. It used to be millibars, now it's millibars, and now it's hectopascals or pascals. But anyway, same thing. Um, and then, so everybody's all on the same page, so to speak. But as Jeff mentions, yeah, what you're seeing on that display is uh, from the satellite system. So yeah, you're going to be actually, you know, going kind of like that. Uh, in fact, I've seen even larger changes in displayed altitude than what you're talking about here. Uh, That was actually pretty tight tolerance, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Our Airbuses, for example, uh, if you were leveling off at an intermediate altitude, it would hold that very accurately. But once you got to your cruise altitude and you told the aircraft what the cruise altitude is going to be, it would let the aircraft creep up and down 50 feet. So uh, the idea was that you know, it wouldn't drive the control surfaces and thrash the engines around trying to maintain exactly the right altitude because that's inefficient. Uh, much better to let it ride up and down a little bit uh, because I make smaller control 
movements because that creates less drag. So they, they decided that they would let it float 50 feet high or 50 feet low and then just adjust slowly back to uh, your cruise altitude, So, um, which is perfectly acceptable when it comes to the limits of flying because uh, there's at least a 1,000 feet between you, so plus or minus 50 feet is not a big factor. I Sometimes you'll, you'll get a, a pressure wave come through, and you'll you'll feel the airplane move, and your altimeter will stay almost the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Neil, Neil's very disappointed. Oh, I don't think anything we've said disproves uh, the flat Earth. Uh, no, it's theory. definitely flat. Yeah. It's yeah, just yeah, that the airplanes absolutely. aren't flying in a flat altitude. Yeah, yeah We don't yeah. go near the edge. Right. The pressure oh, does change. Lord, no. That's like every, even flat earthers will acknowledge that, right? Yeah. And if you fly off the edge, there's no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> no pressure. No fly off pressure. The yeah. Um, all right. So uh, Brian ends with, uh, as always, thanks for such a great podcast, all the work you put into it. Okay. That's all Liz, he says. And <laughs> thanks for building such a great community. We all appreciate you and the crew. Oh, and if I can, okay, one more last time here, Brian, we've already mentioned it twice now, I think. Um, The podcast that he and Micah produce uh, is called thejourneyistthereward.org. Remember .org, not com. Don't do com, even though there is a website, (laughs) but it's not his and his his, uh, podcast. Um, Anyway. TheJourneyIsTheReward.org, and this is uh, Brian's project to fly the remaining 300,000 actual butt-in-seat miles to achieve lifetime United mileage plus 1K status. So, again, Passenger Brian, thank you, and hope we I hope we answered your question. So he's going to be done next week, right? As much yeah. as he flies? <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. That's going to be a tough, tough thing to... Um, to, to get, I think. Um, more audio feedback. More audio feedback. This time it is from Dave, and he says, I'm writing you today to forward an audio recording that I made back on September 9th, 2020. Totally forgot about this. It was almost two years ago. However, better late than never. Since this recording, I've completed my flight instructor rating, and I'm sitting in line to start my start at my local flight school. Thanks for all you do. So that deserves a, a round of applause. Well done. Congratulations. Nice job, job, Dave. All right. So let's see what uh, Dave says here in uh, his audio feedback. Two years ago. APG crew, this is Dave up at uh, 6,000 feet in a Cessna 177 Cardinal over the Ottawa area. Just wanted to uh, send a quick message to you guys to say thank you to each and every one of you for keeping me motivated. Uh, about a week ago, I passed my Group 1 IFR, which is in Canada that is equivalent to your uh, multi-engine IFR. I'm now a commercially rated uh, and uh, multi-engine instrument rated pilot. Uh, so I want to thank you for keeping me motivated. Uh, today, uh, I was actually just doing the last part of the commercial rating which is a 300 mile cross country and decided to exercise my uh, new instrument uh, rating as well so been having a lot of fun uh, been up for about seven hours now and uh, about to get back home so just want to thank you all and keep doing what you're doing because there's a lot of us that are silent that don't write in and uh, don't send in voice messages very often or if at all uh, but you're keeping us motivated along the way so thank you very much and keep it up and uh, keep the blue side up from Canada. See ya. 
Thank you, Dave. Wow, that was awesome. Uh, and I'm so glad that you stumbled upon this audio feedback that you recorded a couple of years ago. Uh, and because uh, that's really motivational and inspirational to us as uh, members of this uh, APG crew doing the show every week. Every week. Uh, and again, congratulations to all of those ratings and now your uh, flight instructor rating. And you'll have to send us some more audio feedback to let us know how that goes and how, how, what it's like to be flying with those little young students out there trying to kill you. <laughs> Canadians, too. Oh, and the Canadians. That's even worse. Yeah, you're right, Liz. Yeah, saying sorry all the time. Oh, sorry. sorry. Sorry, I tried sorry. to kill you. <laughs> uh, anyway, isn't that nice? Thank you, Dave. Isn't that cool? I mean, that really does mean a lot to us to hear. We hear a lot of those kind of stories. A lot of the time, uh, people um, just say, you know, this is not to be shared on the show, but, you know, this is how much, you know, your your show me- meant to me or means to me and others out there. And so it's just always something that we, you know, you take a couple of steps back and take a deep breath and go, wow, I guess we should probably really think about what we're saying and maybe shoot for something ab- nah, above 50% nah, accuracy. No, no, no. Yeah. Nah, that'd be too hard. That would be quite hard. Yeah. That's what she said. All right. There's that 50% guarantee right there. Thank you, Liz. Uh, Okay. Here's another one. Um, It's one of our new patrons. Uh, uh, He's only been a patron for, I think, maybe a month or two. Uh, Els Piloto. Uh, Dear APG crew, in 2020, I caught the bullet and lost my job as captain on the Airbus A380. During my time grounded, I found the APG podcast, which helped keep my spirits up and me in the aviation news loop while having a good chuckle here and there. However, I did have to skip the getting to know us part, not because I couldn't stand Captain Jeff singing, but because all of you... (laughs) But all because all of you. Well, still, that's why I skipped it. Yeah, oh, shut up. Um, <laughs> I thought it was maybe because of Liz's singing, but I, uh, yeah, I don't, they don't hear it. They don't hear it. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, not because I couldn't stand Captain Jeff singing, but because all of you still got to fly, if not retired. I was surprised how that negatively affected me. But this is, of course, through no fault of the APG crew. Fast forward to today, I'm back in the seat and now listen to the entire podcast, thoroughly enjoying the banter, and even Jeff singing. Wow. Um, wow. Naturally, wow. I, I also have to pay special homage to Captain Nick's epic plane tales. May I suggest a tale covering the achievements and life of Beryl Markham, whom has been unjustly lost to the sands of time and needs to be celebrated for her intellect, bravery, and I guess determination. As determination. <laughs> yeah. Why did she have a very dramatic crash? Uh, she must have. Uh, I don't know what, what her termination's all about. No, de- determination. As one of the first great aviators, who like Amelia, showed that women can also achieve aviation greatness even with the added headwinds of society's expect- expectations of women in the 1930s. Now yeah. I'm no longer counting the penny. Oh, you want to say anything about that? I was just, yeah, I took a look at that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have covered the life of a Lady Bush pilot uh, a little bit later than uh, Beryl's, but um, if I can find out some more details about her life, uh, because it looked like she did have a fascinating um, flying career, uh, including um, a solo crossing of the Atlantic, uh, first woman to do so, Hmm. and the first pilot to cross from uh, England, to um she actually crashed in 
not Newfoundland, uh, but somewhere nearby. Nova Scotia. Uh, so she made it across, but she was hoping to get all the way down to New York or somewhere. Mm. Um, I think she got airborne from, uh, oh, uh, Abingdon, uh, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, so she she did had did some marvelous achievements. Um, so, yeah, uh, I would uh, like to cover. I will certainly take a look. Okay, excellent. Uh, so now he continues. Now I am no longer counting the pennies. You have a new patron for the uh, beer. Um, I mean, coffee fund. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's a little a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, great stuff. Keep it up, and I'll continue to look forward to every new episode from one of your fans in the Great Sand Pit. And again, that's Els. Uh, how does he uh, Els call Palito. him? Els Palito. But we have a couple more items from him further down. If you oh, we do. Yeah, well, let's do him. that. Uh, Liz is telling me that uh, we have a couple of items uh, from him in addition to this. So, uh, skipping to thirteen uh, for those who have the uh, the song sheet. Um, this is, uh, uh, let's see, hello, APG crew, back in, uh, oh, wait, I have to read my own little note there and get ready for something. Uh, hang on. Okay, I think I'm ready. Back in episode 528, you were discussing the hole caused by a tire deflation on an Emirates A380 on its way to Brisbane. As an A380 pilot, I thought I could wade in on this one. I suspect the tire sidewall was damaged by the bolt, which detached from the front nose gear, most likely somewhere just before liftoff, as weight was coming off of the tire in question. Okay, so we were wondering why they had that picture on in the news article of the of the nose wheel strut piece thing. So I guess now I, it makes sense that the, it must have been the nut in that assembly coming off and then puncturing the sidewall of that uh, main landing gear tire on the left side. As you guys correctly established, the bay is not pressurized. So as the aircraft climbed, the uh, Delta P ah, oh yeah, Delta P. Um, increased, uh, leading to the eventual tire rupture at high altitude. Now that the tire's pressure was released into the bay, this created, he says, get ready again, Jeff. So I'm, I'm listening to him. Okay, I'm, I'm ready for a different one this time. Um, okay. Uh, now that the tire's pressure was released into the bay, this created a large delta P between the body landing gear bays and the rarefied outside air. The left and right bays do have gaps inside the fairing connecting them. Looking at the fairing that blew out, I noticed on walk-arounds, uh, it's very thin. Its purpose is only for aerodynamics, whereas the landing gear doors are beefed up to withstand deploying into the 250-knot slipstream on retraction and extension of the gear. So naturally, it would be this thin fairing that would blow out first, or blow out first, relieving the aircraft's sudden bloated feeling. Additionally, I've I've checked, and it is not possible to see the fairing from the cabin or use the taxi cam on the vertical stabilizer, so the crew would have been unaware of the damage. The only indications would have been a deflated tire on ECAM and the reported bang. So I support the decision to continue, and I'm sure they would have made that decision in concert with network control in terms of further breakup of the fairing 
The horizontal stabilizer is high up and out of the way of danger. I also think that the crew did a great job and made a sound decision. If the flight did not return, excuse me, if the flight did return, fuel dumping is not a requirement. The A380 has demonstrated Autolands up to a max takeoff weight and does a fine job of it. The only reason why the A380 has the ability to dump fuel is to meet the one engine out go around requirement of 2.5%. And he says, and you guys thought Miami Rick was the only one who liked the books. However, we may uh, make use of the fuel jettison to avoid overheated brakes and melted fuse plugs after landing. Even then, we cannot dump from the four feed tanks, which can hold at least 27 tons each. Wow. (laughs) Meaning we are likely significantly above the maximum landing weight. Regulations only state that we cannot plan to land overweight. As you know, after an overweight landing, engineers will do a set of checks to ensure no issues arise from the landing and back service the aircraft will go oh back in service the aircraft will go love the podcast and keep them coming your fan in the great sand pit yeah i remember i don't know how many what did he say what episode was that we were talking about that 528 so that was a few ago um not quite 10 but it was a, a, a little while back but i do remember we were looking at that hole in that fairing and uh we as he said you know we suspected correctly that that area was not pressurized um but um yeah or visible or visible yeah i yeah. think we were debating the decision uh, right and wondering how much the crew knew about it and uh obviously were unable to find out a lot about the amount of damage. So, uh, yeah, I think the decision was very good. Now, looking back at the full facts, I agree. thanks very much indeed. Thanks for taking the time to go back and wander into the cabin and have a peer down to see if you could see that bit of the airframe. That was interesting. Yeah, and checking out that camera and the whole bit, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's the cool thing about doing the show is that you know, we have so many listeners from so many different backgrounds and they fly so many different types of uh, airplanes out there that uh, they uh, uh, don't hesitate to chime in and, and let us know. Keep us on uh, our toes. Yeah, keep us on our toes. The next one's really for Nick if you wanted to get him to do it. Okay, maybe. yeah. Well, Nick, um, Liz is telling me that this next one is for you, number 14, right? Is that yep. what you're talking about, Liz? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, again, this is this from... Uh, El Splato. El Splato. Again, yeah. Okay. So, hello, Jeff and APG crew. And then, um, Nick, take over. Yeah, this is where we fall out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, maybe we shouldn't read this one. (laughs) No, no, I think it's fair fair to uh, remind everyone that I'm no longer current. And uh, I have to rely on my memory to work all this stuff out. So um, it was regarding a very serious Q&H incident, an altimeter pressure setting incident of an aircraft into Charles de Gaulle in Paris, uh, 529. Sorry, I'm going to have to Sunday quarterback your comments. And Nick, that's me, not the other Nick, uh, regarding VOR DME approaches versus RNP approaches, what I said was because we did a lot of altimeter checks in the old days uh, every mile on the dme it would have been uh less likely to happen uh but he quite correctly points out that the altimeter difference would have resulted in an erroneous descent path regardless of whether you're doing an rnp approach or a vor dme approach uh, which is actually when i thought about it afterwards is absolutely correct so 
VORDME would not have been any safer in this situation, and this is Mr. Sandpit speaking again, as the error was altitude, not position. VORDME would have given the same erroneous descent path uh, like the RMP. DME height checks would also have appeared correct, and that was my error. This ah. is because the altitude error was constant throughout the descent. The glide path is a pseudo one created supposedly using a correct alimeter setting. And we know in this case the alimeter setting was out by, what was it, 10 millibars? Something like oh. that. I don't remember exactly. It was it a was couple hundred feet, 300 feet, something. Yeah. yeah, would it be about right? Um, and they got down very low um, before they realized there was a problem. Not even the ground-based augmentation GBAS on a GLS approach would have helped as the SMC, the flight management computer, computed glide bath in relation to the Q&H alimeter setting um, would have been in error. If mm. anything, RNPs are safer than VOR DME. I'm old school, so I don't know about that. <laughs> no, they probably are. Because they use a cross-check of GPS and IRS, which uh, then the FMC produces as an estimated position of uncertainty. Um, you know, we, we used to fly um, those RMP approaches overlaid over an NDB or a VOR, which is even better in my mind, because then you've got all the information. Mm. But don't let me confuse the situation. <laughs> Um, this is monitored by the aircraft and guarantees position within uh, uh, three nautical miles or one nautical mile. Does he mean, yeah? I think, Does he mean I, point I think three? Point. A point one, yeah. I think you've put the decimal place yeah. in the wrong position, Mr. Sandpit. And you've made a critical <laughs> error, which has completely ruined your argument. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> Uh -oh. <laughs> the regular GPS approach is point three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now, he's or, written, he's written three point, not point three. Yeah, yeah. Jeff doesn't see this. You can't see what he. At. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, anyway. he just put the decimal uh, in the wrong place. He put all. the decimal place in the wrong place. A critical error <laughs> which might have killed him. <laughs> um, and. <laughs> Any degradation? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, You're any such a cad. would trigger a warning to the crew during an RNP. Uh, VOR DME. You have to trust the VOR and DME are fully serviceable. Uh, yes. In fact, on the thirty first of March, uh, two thousand and three, a British Mediterranean A three twenty nearly impacted terrain at Addis Ababa twice. During due to a faulty VOR damaged by rainwater. Yeah, I do remember we actually covered that incident. Yeah, nasty, nasty. Uh, the only way a height check would have raised suspicions is by using a glide path irradiated by an ILS. Keep the ILS. Yes, uh, for we sure. Like, <laughs> we like ILSs. Mm -hmm. Then there could have been a chance to pick up the error. But in my experience, most crews are pretty poor at performing height checks on ILSs. Well, they obviously don't have good trainers. That's all I yeah. can say. I've flown into cities where the temperature is pushing a plus 30 degrees centigrade, and this creates about a 20% underread in the altimeter. Yes, you're quite right. So a 1,500-foot high check in ISA temperatures would read about 1,250 feet on the ILS in these hot conditions. I've yet to fly with someone who's picked up the error and mentioned it or planned for it. Interesting. Uh -oh. Uh, personally, I'm really surprised the crew did not react to the quickly reducing height on the RA callouts. And like Nick, I found it very odd the autopilot was disconnected for the go-round. 
maybe the captain had just come off the 737. Yeah. Doesn't the 737 do automatic go Only if you have both a couple, a dual autopilot oh, yeah. approach, right? Single autopilot. Auto, when you hit toga, it disconnects. Okay. And and you need to put a dollar in the slot as well, don't you? Yes. For each go around? Yeah. And pedal faster. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, this was a prime example. He says of Dr. Reason's Swiss cheese model. And we say the APGs. Funyun, the Funyun effect. Yes, the Funyun model. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry, Swiss cheese models out of date. Man. Yeah, yeah, it's old school. Um, layer after layer of safety penetrated. I say all those Funyuns lining up. <laughs> if they had set just one millibar higher, which equals 28 feet, they would have impacted the ground. Wow, not, uh, and it wouldn't have been on the runway, which is yep. not good. Uh, sorry uh, to go all Miami, Rick, on you again. Yeah, this is your very last feedback you'll ever have with us, so <laughs> make, the, <laughs> make the best of it. Uh, but nevertheless, I thoroughly enjoyed being part of the APG community for as long as it lasted. Uh, well, <laughs> if I'm still part of the community. Ah, yes, this is more like it. Yes, a little bit of cowtowing. <laughs> Uh, and not excommunicated after this piece of feedback. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to. My very good friend Liz is going to make the final decision on that, and I can well, already see her giving us thumbs yeah. down. He is a patron, Liz. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and he is in the, the highest. Best. He is in the highest tier of patron. Oh, is he? Yes. Oh, we love him. Okay. <laughs> we, <enough>. we love <laughs> you. We El love Piloto. you, El Piloto. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. Good feedback, actually. And you've had yeah. a triple whammy tonight. So good job. Yeah. Uh, all the best and happy days aloft. Well, to those of us that fly. Uh, again, from your fan in the great sandpit. Uh, so, yeah, have fun in the. If you're a fa- fan in the great sandpit, doesn't it blow the sand? It <laughs> makes eyes? a mess. <laughs> gets everywhere. <laughs> anyway, no, that's absolutely quite correct. Thank you for pointing that out. Uh, I would have lived in uh, ignorance and happily, happily lived in ignorance forever. <laughs> Thanks for spoiling it for me. I'm going to have to sulk for the rest of the show. <laughs> no, please don't. I don't like it when you sulk. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Good job. Uh, and thanks for that. Uh, you wouldn't be a trainer by any chance, would you? Uh, so other Nick. For a... <laughs> brilliant. Good feedback. like that one. Yeah. So Nick. How how familiar are you with WAS, the wide with area? Was, system? Uh, no. Very familiar oh. with the implementation of it in, of systems on airplanes. Not nearly as familiar with flying it. I was I was just wondering how whether this would have been a problem with WAS because it's ground based. Right. Correct. So would it would it have corrected for that or with the glide up? Uh, we just started using it. We're going to get ready to start using it. Here at my company, so I'm just curious. Uh, it brings us down to ILS minimums from sometimes yeah, lower. I, th- I thought that that because it's a ground-based system, I th- I thought that that might prevent this sort of a situation from occurring if you had the wrong altimeter setting. Uh, but I don't know enough about it myself. If you had the but, wrong altimeter setting, yeah. Like in other yeah, words, you yeah. It, it, it kind of gives you kind of some of the advantages of a, an electronic ILS uh, glide soap beam, I think. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. But it's still based on satellite. Yeah. It's still based on a, the position of your airplane, mm-hmm. right? The uh, man, I don't even, I don't even know it well enough to, to want to talk, but uh, you know, right. my, All right. 
with, with regard to G G a right. Shooting LPV approaches versus shooting right. the old, uh, area navigation approaches with non was, um, they get you the was, um, upgraded the quality of the signal or upgraded the quality Precision. of the position feedback. But, um, I, I don't know well enough how well the, um, approach actually works to answer that. So I think I might be confusing WAS with um, like what they have at uh, Newark uh, GBAS, ground-based augmentation system that augments the existing global positioning system used in U.S. airspace. Um, um, I think... Uh, yeah, I don't know that one. Okay, well, this one says, is um, there's a question in here in uh, Google, um, is GBAS the same as Wide Area Augmentation System? They're both GPS augmentation systems. However, GBAS and WAS differ in approach and infrastructure, resulting in different capabilities. WAS uses a network of spatially separated reference stations to make multiple simultaneous measurements of GPS satellites. Okay, so I think that uh, the GBAS is actually is the one that actually has the some kind of a ground-based navigation system that works in conjunction. I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll throw the link uh, the Wikipedia link in the show notes if you feel like um, learning if more. Any, if there are any experts out there, that yeah. Can... Oh yeah, good point, Liz. Uh, she's saying if there are any. Experts out there that uh, you know know all the uh, you know differences, little differences between them, and you know what you know what the advantages are, and and uh, that sort of thing. That'd be very helpful. Well, I haul boxes is making two comments here. I haul boxes. Was is space based wide area. Okay, and GBAS is sat signal ground corrected. Okay, sounds to me like GBAS is a little bit better than just Was, but. I don't know. It was better. <laughs> it was better. Oh, that's funny, Liz. Yeah. Okay. Uh, number, number eight. <laughs> number eight. Okay. Uh, here we go. Um, Jimmy. Um, he says, Dear Captain Jeff, Captain Nick A, Captain Rick, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick C, and Liz. Woo! Got it all. Uh, it's a great pleasure uh, for me to contact you all and provide a little piece of feedback from episode 528 about the uh, TAP Airbus A330-900 departing Luanda. I've been a, an avid APG listener for some time now, and I can say that I am deeply infected with the APG virus. Uh-oh, sorry. In the beginning, when I started listening to the podcast, I thought I would not be able to endure the three hours the show normally takes. But when I got long. hit with the virus... Uh, and this seemed to numb me greatly and kept me yeah, from shortening Steph the Steph has engineered that virus very well, don't you think? <laughs> she has. Um, and we're not supposed to uh, release that information, oh. though, Nick. Yeah, you're not okay. supposed to say that part. Well, I, I'll edit it in post. It came from an animal market in Charlotte. Uh, an animal market in Charlotte. Oh, uh, too soon. Um, <laughs> let's see. It kept me from shortening the contents, and I became a total enthusiast of it, especially the he says pilot tales, but plane tales and the getting to know us segment. I fly an A350 in the Middle East. Yep. Ooh, the one where the paint, man. you know, the one where the paint is, well, you know, oh, uh, yeah, remember that. Yeah. <laughs> back on the issue. Allow me to share some of the A350 features. The aircraft has a runway overrun warning, runway overrun protection, row ROP system. 
I don't know if they say it like that, R-O-W slash R-O-P system, combined with a, I would call it Ro-Rop, Rop, Ro, Ro-Rop, uh, combined with a break, possible title, uh, break to vacate Is that system. Scooby-Doo? Yeah, it sounded like Scooby-Doo, didn't it? <laughs> rot roll rot roll <laughs> Uh, okay, so the 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 ROW ROP system combined with a break to vacate BTV system, which gives various warnings to the crew of the runway is or becomes too short for landing or takeoff. That's great. Uh, that's really that nice to have. Yeah, they needed that in Burbank. Uh, runway data comes from the airport navigation function, which contains a database of airports uh, worldwide usually all within the scope of operation. It also receives data from the Terrain Awareness System, TAWS, and inputs from IRSs uh, for position, speed, and wind data during approach, as well as landing weight. For example, uh, no, for landing, the system will project or calculate a stopping line on the runway after wind, temperature, and air pressure inputs are made on the FMS. After such data is received and runway state is given, dry, wet, contaminated, the flight warning system... FWS will give warnings below 400 feet to the pilot where the system now becomes dynamic, taking in consideration wind and uh, descent path variations, making the stopping line variable as well. Warnings can be uh, runway too short, two times, uh, set max reverse, keep max reverse, uh, break, max braking, max braking, as well as runway condition degraded. If the braking system detects a different deceleration rate due to the runway being selected wet and uh, itself detecting a, detecting a contamination higher than expected, the BTV function, once a taxiway exit is selected by the crew, taking into account the stopping line with some marking for passenger comfort, will decelerate the aircraft to within 10 knots ground speed prior to taxiway exit at a rate of 0.2 G to a maximum of 0.35 G. During takeoff, the takeoff surveillance, a TOS function, checks the data inserted on the FMS and compares it with performance figures to make sure such data is consistent and compatible with the required data for takeoff. The FMS will compute then and compare the liftoff distance with the, the available runway length. Warnings if data are, is not consistent can then be uh, takeoff runway too short, Takeoff runway too short, uh, depending on whether the discrepancy detected at takeoff thrust. Oh, okay, I see one is uh, in red and one's um, in amber, I guess, depending on whether discre- discrepancy is detected at takeoff thrust application or when the takeoff configuration PB is pressed during taxi. Again, the FMS computes liftoff distance based on aircraft gross weight, uh, V rotate, V2, flap setting, takeoff thrust, anti ice setting and the pack setting, as well as the altitude, outside air temperature, the last two provided by the ADIRS, and the runway slope. Uh, other warnings can be, uh, and these are all, uh, yeah, in, um, in uh, yellow, orange, uh, or caution uh, kind of uh, warnings. Uh, takeoff speeds not inserted, takeoff speeds too low, uh, takeoff V1, VR, V2 disagree, takeoff runway too short, check takeoff weight and takeoff data, uh, takeoff speed too low, check takeoff weight and takeoff data. In all, you can see that the integrated systems provide a lot of safety to the operation, but they also rely on the data of the ANF function, as well as proper data or data insertion. If the runway is no-tammed, 
being shortened, for example, this has to be manually inserted on the ANF function, as it does not know or receive NOTAM data. I hope I was not too long or too technical on the feedback. The show was three hours anyways, but uh, definitely wanted to share with the community for everybody's <laughs> enhancing of A350 capabilities. I love flying it around the world. Many thanks for all the super and engaging topics. Best regards, and this is uh, Jimmy R. Sanchez. Uh, thank I you. Jimmy and Els Polito need to that get was together. Brilliant. And- uh, I because I had heard about this system and I knew it was very clever, mm. but uh, that is much more uh, detailed uh, and capable than I expected. So I'm fascinated by that. Thanks very much indeed, Jimmy. Appreciate that. Yeah, pretty slick system, huh? Well, you think of the number of incidents we cover, we regularly get uh, aircraft uh, overruns, uh, aircraft, um, you know, making mistakes, turning the wrong way on the runway and trying to take off on the short bit rather than the long bit, you know, all, all these sort of classic mistakes of, of inattention. If the aircraft can pick you up on that, that is just makes life so much safer. I agree. All right. Uh, nine. This is from Kevin. This has been um, around a long time. Pardon me? This has been around a long time. Oh, okay. We've had this one for a while, um, says Liz. Uh, hello, Captain Jeff and APG crew. Greeting from slightly north of Dana's old stomping grounds. Inquiry minds need to know if Captain Nick journeyed from his countryside estate to see this for himself, or did he dismiss it as it was a Boeing? I enjoyed listening to the Oshkosh episode. This means I finally caught back up to your release schedule. Of course, having the last two episodes be sub three hours made it easier. Yeah, I did that just for you. Uh, Best wishes for the rest of the APG crew and to you enjoying the remainder of your vacation time and a safe return to the B-717's left seat. Okay, yeah, we've had this for a while. And this is from Kevin St. John, a very, very long time listener going back uh, almost as far as Jeff Felmuth here to the uh, Catholic pilot days. Oh, good job. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Uh, motorway drivers on the lookout for a Boeing 747 being driven up country. And there's a picture of it there on the video. Um, motorists in the UK have been keeping a lookout uh, for a uh, uh, 747 fuselage uh, that departed Costwald. Is it Costwalds? Cotswolds. 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 The Cotswolds. An area of the country. And how, hey, now I'm going to try this one. Gloucestershire. That's not bad. Okay. At around 9.30 a.m., heading towards the M5, which it traveled on for 50 miles. It then joined the M6, followed by the M60, eventually arriving at Barton Airport in Salford, Greater Manchester, at around 2.30. Police had to escort the abnormal load and warned motorists of potential delays. Uh, Gloucestershire, uh, Gloucestershire police tweeted, We're escorting an abnormal load from Kemble Airfield and on the M5 from 9.30 a.m. Thursday. The route uh, the 5.8 meter wide aircraft fuselage will take, wow, yeah, takes up a lot of roadway, uh, is, and I'm not going to go through all those routes. Um, Motorists have been monitoring, monitoring its progress and trying to catch a glimpse of the aircraft on the motorway. After all, it's not every day you get to see the plane on the motorway. Uh, Let's see. Now in its new home up north, the plane is uh, to become a tourist attraction and airline memorabilia company Doors to Manual plan to use it as a backdrop for weddings and conferences, as well as for educational purposes. 
the website for quote the deck has that's deck d e c k has uh, it as it has been dubbed reads welcome to the deck a Boeing seven forty seven experience brought to you by Doors to Manual got to no be careful. wonder they were using it for weddings. <laughs> That was a uh, that was a different <laughs> different website. I think you're you're thinking of. Um, we are working hard behind the scenes to uh, save the cockpit and top deck of an ex British Airways Boeing seven forty seven dash four three six Golf Bravo Yankee Golf Alpha and rehome her at Manchester City Airport to be preserved and enjoyed by many for years to come. Uh, doors to manual save the plane from the scrap heap and the co-founder of the company drew hannah said doing so was the biggest thrill uh, according to the manchester evening news he said this has been a dream of ours for a long long time and we're so excited to be finally getting ready for the 747's final journey to our hangar i don't think many of us will have witnessed a boeing 747 driving up the motorway before so it's set to be a sight many families and flight fanatics will never forget we're, uh, we've been able to build doors to manual into one of the world's leading suppliers of airline memorabilia and parts. Now being able to salvage such a significant part of an iconic aircraft is our biggest thrill so far. Very cool. Thank you. Uh, he he Kevin. wanted to know if I journeyed up to watch some bit of a broken old 747 <laughs> drift by. Uh, and the answer was yes. no. I can I can go to most airports and see broken 747s fly by. Oh, was it on flight aware? I am offended. Did you follow it on flight aware? Uh, uh, yeah, was it on flight aware? Whether <laughs> <laughs> you got high enough. <laughs> I am offended at airline pilot guide. Yeah. Um. Okay. He wouldn't be saying that if Rick was here. Yeah, he would be saying that if Rick were here, I think. <laughs> For sure. Um, Number 10. 10. Marius. 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 Uh, just some quick feedback for episode 530. You were talking about the roles of the captains and first officers and mentioned that in your airline, a captain normally can't fly from the right side. In my airline, in Norway, captains can fly from both sides. I think that's the norm for most airlines in Norway, maybe Europe as well. At one of our sim rides each year, we have something called right-hand seat qualification. We will then switch seats, and the captain will uh, be trained in the right seat doing different maneuvers, procedures, emergencies. So if there's a flight that uh, is missing an FO and there are no FOs on standby, they can also use a captain. By the way, I don't know if you use the term standby over there, yeah, we do. Uh, it means we are not scheduled for any flying, but they will call you if you're in need. I think we, at my airline, we call it reserve. In that case, we have 90 minutes or more to get to the airport. And in my, even though I don't think it's like a specific rule at ACME, I think it's generally accepted like 120 minutes, two hours uh, response, not 90. If you don't get a call, it will almost be like a day off, but I can be too far from home. I can't be too far from home in case they call me. Yeah, that's the restriction. You have kind of a tight leash. Um, let's see. Also, a quick note Quick note about salary. The norm in Norway, and also quite a few places in Europe, is that we are paid a fixed salary depending on your positions, seniority, and if you're working full-time or part-time. So I will get paid the same regardless of, how, regardless of how many hours I fly, plus per diem. 
but we don't have the ability to bid trips. We fly what the company schedules for us, um, although I have some flexibility in that I can block seven days a month. Take care and keep up the great work. Best regards, Marius. Uh, that's very similar, I think, Nick, uh, Captain Nick, to the system that you were um, flying under uh, for Virgin, right? Uh, yes. It uh, didn't matter what aircraft type you flew, you got paid uh, whether you were captain or a first officer and uh, you know the similar sort of uh, um, time in uh, rank and uh, part-time full-time that sort of thing but uh, I mean every aircraft has uh, aircraft every airline has negotiated its own contracts with its employees so you'll find variations uh, right. almost guaranteed between all the European as well as all the American airlines uh, each airline does it slightly differently but they often follow the same sort of trend I seem to recall uh, that I, you had I, a little bit of a choice uh, for picking certain trips didn't you uh, most certainly, yeah. That was okay. dependent on seniority, but in a three-month rotor. So, you know, once every three months, I was my seniority counted within my group, and my group was the top group. So I had a very good chance of getting what I chose. But the very next month, I'd be at the bottom, and two-thirds of the company, regardless of my seniority, would be above me in the in bidding rights. So mm. um, that's the kind of way we worked. But other airlines do it different ways, and even we negotiated different methods during my time with the company. It changed every few years. Mm -hmm. yeah. And in the charter, it's it's more, you know, we all get paid the same. And it's more based on, uh, we have different tiers based on how many hours you have. And I just bid for days on. It's, I'm on an eight on, six off schedule. So I got to work every Tuesday, come home every Tuesday. Oh, okay. So, and it's a year long schedule. So we'll bid again uh, right after Christmas. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. You have to really kind of almost yeah, you have yeah, to have your life planned out clairvoyant to, to know what's going to happen yeah. in your life. I, I don't know what I'm doing next, next week, <laughs> let alone for the rest of the year. Right. Well, let me tell you, we want to see you again in six months. You can actually make the appointment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, yeah, that's that's true. Uh, we, we can't do it with the system that we're uh, oh, flying. But as you know, because that's very similar to the same thing at uh, American, right? Yeah. All right. Um, let me 11. go over here to 11. And um, Peter sent this in. Hi, Captain Jeff. Uh, came across this video regarding the above subject, which is Delta, Boeing, and Airbus. Um, I thought you might find it interesting. And uh, the title of this video is Delta just ordered the 797, sort of. Okay, uh, I'm only going to play a little bit of it because it's kind of a long video and, uh, you know, it's a long show and we don't have time, uh, but uh, well, it'll be a little teaser. Here we go. Delta is the world's second largest airline, both in terms of fleet size and in the number of passengers it carries. So anytime it places an order for a new plane, it's bound to make some noise. Its recent order for an absolute boatload of 737 MAX 10s is no exception, as it's the largest order Boeing's received in years. But more important than the deal's size is the impact it will have on both Boeing and Delta's future. Because, below the surface, this deal is an implicit endorsement of the yet-to-be-launched 797, and it shows Delta will be the very first in line once it's available. Let me explain. Okay, this is Kobe E-Planes, 
and I'm going to go ahead and... I think that's an X. I think the wing makes an X. Oh, I'm sorry. X-planes. My bad. (laughs) Well, just... Yeah, what is it again? Kobe X-planes. Kobe X-planes. Oh, Kobe X-planes. Oh. I think it's a play on words. It is a play on words. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Nick. Anyway, so that's just a teaser of uh, this video that talks about um, uh, the implied, uh, the implication that uh, Delta uh, will be um, aligned or first in line or one of the first in line for uh, potentially the the new Boeing 797, if it ever comes to fruition. Um, So uh, we'll have a link to that video. He's going to explain it. He's going to explain it. Yes, Kobe explains it all. Thank you. I uh, like. yeah, I watched it with interest mm-hmm. um, because it's uh, it's something that our company used to regularly do. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is what's happening here because uh, obviously Delta have put in an order for these uh, 737s. But um, whenever we came up uh, to acquiring some new aircraft and we were a big Airbus uh, customer, um, we would always uh, show enormous interest in, say, the triple sevens, or uh, some new seven forty sevens, or whatever. Um, really, just to try and drive the price of the Airbuses down to have it as a negotiating tool. Because if you just pitch up to Airbus, I think the company felt that uh, if they didn't have some alternative to uh, uh, use as a stick to beat Airbus with they'd have to pay top dollar for the aircraft and they didn't want to do that. So they used to go to Airbus and go, well, if you don't drop the price, we'll go to Boeing and buy all these secondhand 777s, which we can get for tons because no one wants them. Um, and, uh, you know, they Boeing, Airbus would go, oh, it's a little all right, then we'll drop the price a little bit. That that was my thought anyway. Um, and I've, I, I wonder whether this is a negotiating tactic. So they're looking to... You know, show great interest in an aircraft to, to perhaps ensure that they get the best possible price for Airbus. And if they don't like the price, then they've got uh, these uh, 797s uh, as a fallback. So, you know, that's just my thought on it. Well, gamesmanship, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. But, you know, the, the companies that sell these things obviously know that that's going on too, right? Well, I don't think they're, they're stupid. You had of United and American when boom doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Delta has <laughs> Delta has yet to announce its order of uh, the boom supersonic jets. We could go to 16 but, next and talk about that, Jeff. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, control room's telling me, directing me now to head over to, speaking of boom, um, we have some feedback from Mazuts. Um, American becomes the third airline to place an order for boom supersonic jets. Hello, all. Hope you're keeping well. Just a very brief message after I stumbled across this story from theguardian.com. Captain Jeff, tempted to get a new rating? Or perhaps even enough to tempt Captain Nick out of retirement? Best wishes, (laughs) Mazoots. Fix my heart first. I'd say, uh, yeah, no and no. Uh, American becomes third airline. Okay, we talked about that. Boom's overtures promising much shorter flight times are expected to carry first passengers in 2029. And uh, we're showing on the video an uh, artist's impression of Boom's supersonic jet overture. But don't they not have an engine yet? Isn't that true? I don't know. I don't know all the details, Liz. Um, 
regarding what might uh, be powering this thing. Um, the article talks about uh, commercial supersonic transatlantic travel is on course to roar back almost 20 years after Concorde was de- decommissioned. American Airlines on Tuesday agreed to buy up to 20 ultra-fast jets from the aviation startup Boom Supersonic with an option Mike to purchase 40 more. Here. Yeah, main man Micah in our uh, live audience is being a bit cynical. I ordered a couple of couple dozen Boom Supersonic jets as well. I think I have just as good a shot of getting them as does United and American. <laughs> well, I don't know if you have the same cachet, Micah. Um, or cash. Or cash in, uh, in the wallet. Uh, but I, I understand what you're saying. I, I, I have to admit I'm a little skeptical about all this as well. But uh, they, this article goes on to say the Overture jets, which promise speeds of up to Mach 1.7 over water, twice the speed of today's fastest, fastest commercial aircraft, though below Concorde's top speed, Mach 2.04, are expected to roll off the production line from 2025 and carry the first passengers in 2029. Uh, so the... American, the third airline after United, which ordered 15 last year, and Virgin Atlantic, which reached a deal in 2016. Uh, Blake Scholl, the founder and chief executive executive of Boom, said, We believe Overture can help American uh, deepen its competitive advantage on network loyalty and overall airline preference through the paradigm-changing benefits of cutting travel times in half. Fewer passengers than subsonic passenger jets with 65 to 88 seats, less capacity than Concorde had, which will initially be priced at business class rates. What do you think about this, Jeff Felmuth, your former airline American putting yeah. in this order? You know, all I can think about is last week's plane tale <laughs> <laughs> about Tulsa. Oh, yeah, the, the boom. Ta- yeah. Well, no, that wasn't a plane tale, was it? No, that was just a. No, that was a news item, I think, that, or a piece feedback. of feedback that uh, somebody had. Uh, yeah, the um, the the back in the '60s when yeah. the Robert. FAA were was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Robert sent that in. Uh, Robert in Tucker, Georgia. Because um, I know NASA is working on ways to, you know, stifle the boom or make it more just a, a low rumble. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you're doing Mach almost two, you're yeah, it's more like a crack. I mean, it's a it's loud. And it's going to go a long way. Um, and the whole problem with Concord is it couldn't fly over the over the land masses. Mm-hmm. It was great between London and the East Coast, but you know it was built to do things like London to L.A. and Australia back to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and going over land, it couldn't do. So unless they solve that problem in a big way, I don't think it's going to happen. And they don't have motors for it yet. That's right. So you yeah. know. Only six years out or seven years out, and they don't have motors for you. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. A wee bit optimistic, perhaps. Yeah, but again, we didn't think there'd be electric airplanes. Yeah, we didn't think the battery technology would ever come around. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we will see. I mean, I'm I'm all for you know being optimistic about all this stuff, but uh, then my skeptical self. This kind of reminds me, and this is, I will preface this by saying this is not a political statement. I'm just using a fact. But uh, here in the United States, California has, uh, it's been highly publicized that California has uh, put in place a framework for legislation to ban gasoline powered cars by like 2035. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, and I think that that, <laughs> I think that that is a, uh, maybe a good goal to have. And, um, I think that, uh, a lot of people got excited about that, but there are just so many technical hurdles to getting to that point yeah. with the whole spectrum of the system, right? It's not just like having the cars that can do it, but then you got to have all the charging apparatus in place. You got to have the big thing in California is the electrical infrastructure. Oh, I know. Which they do not have to support no. the existing. They already have rolling, uh, you know, blackouts or brownouts yes. or whatever they call them uh, on the current infrastructure. Yeah. And so I, I guess this, uh, my point was just that this is, looks very similar to me, right? Like it's a kind of a pie in the sky thing. It looks really great. And mm -hmm. a lot of people can get excited about it. But there are so many technical hurdles that Boom still needs to clear before it can really even be start, started thinking about as a reality. Like Jeff said, the engines, I, they haven't built an airplane, let alone flown an airplane. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's more just like a marketing ploy to get people excited. Yeah, just like a feel good. We're all for this you know, supersonic technology, but we probably have no <laughs> confidence that we'll ever have to pay a dime because it's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Did you read I haul boxes comment? Uh, I haul boxes. Uh, oh, this is good. Under speed, under capacity, underpowered, and perhaps over budget. It's got to be a winner. <laughs> if it were a government contract, for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it'd be great to see supersonic jets flying again. Do I have any desire to get a type rating on it? Nope. Not at all. Maybe fly it if it ever materializes. Yeah, supersonic RV. No, I want to enjoy the journey, not get to where oh, I'm... The journey you know, is the destination. The journey is the destination. What? <laughs> okay. 12. Do, um, do you know how many times you've been supersonic? Like, did it have... Like, is there just a handful of times that you know or were you flying the 38 enough that you... No, I, I think, uh, on purpose, only one time. Um, and, uh, <laughs> because yeah, that was the only airplane. Uh, the T-38 was the only airplane that I personally right. flew that it could, you know, safely go supersonic. Um, it just barely supersonic too. What was it, Jeff? Like 1.2, I think was a max on that. Yeah, Something like that. Yeah. And it took a lot to get there. Yeah. It, it wasn't like the, you know, the F-15, uh, or the. F-18. I was going to say, I assume, Jeff, you, I assume you did it a lot more. Yeah, and it's not a big deal. I mean, people yeah. go, well, how fast does the airplane go? Well, on paper, it does 2.5, but that's not the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not about 1.5. It's about the fastest I've ever been. Okay. I, I think the weirdest thing is that when you, because you're going faster than the speed of sound, when you say something, you can't hear it because it's like already, you're way ahead of it. You can't, wait a minute. Isn't that, doesn't that work like that? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, and then, but it, it catches up with you. when As soon as you slow down, all those words catch up with you and you get deafened. Ah, quit yelling yeah, at me. Absolutely. Look, I was just going to say just for a moment, you guys over there in the States, build some of the most beautiful and fastest military airplanes in the world. How come you couldn't sit down if you wanted to and build a supersonic airliner? I mean, you're really not, you're not selling me your aviation industry very well because oh, we know you can do it if you paint it green or gray. Think, yeah. yeah. Think, Why can't you do it if you paint it white? If you make it a military project, that'll happen. Yeah. I, I think it's just the color to do with. It's just a yeah, color, color, yeah. Color well, it's, it's, you, it's the same aviation companies that are doing this, though. Oh, well. <laughs> I don't know. 
Comment from Neil. <laughs> uh, so no, you, no, you're, it, you're, it hits the back seater doing so is there, whatever what speed you are. So you you let one loose and it hits him doing about <laughs> one point five. It, it could kill him. Yeah, really. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. 12, um, no, I think I, I want to go to 17, Liz. I want to make sure that oh, we talk okay. about this oh, one. Yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. Dominic uh, sent this in. Um, kind of crazy. Uh, hi, Liz and the APG crew. This is interesting. We've heard of road rage and air rage, but air sea rage is new to me. This video has been doing the rounds on social media showing a seaplane landing in Halibut Cove. Actually, it doesn't show the seaplane landing it's it's in halibut cove in alaska taxiing and uh, it's being harassed and eventually damaged by a boat apparently the lady driving the boat owns a nearby restaurant and isn't a fan of seaplanes landing in the cove and that's the lady right there Uh, she is the um, owner of the sultry restaurant in uh, halibut cove well, let me the video? show you a little video here of uh, what happened and uh, why that. Uh, Watch the language in this. Yeah, there. Well, this one uh, actually doesn't have the language. Oh, the okay, other okay. one does. So here, uh, right. this is uh, a local news outlet uh, reporting, and here we go. Eric Lee was taxiing through Halibut Cove, preparing to take off for a flight seeing trip with seven passengers on board when he spotted an aluminum boat approaching him. This is video Lee shot from inside his plane. The aluminum boat was coming toward me. I thought they were trying to get around me at first. And then they started weaving back and forth fairly close to the, to the aircraft. Lee said the narrow cove made it difficult to maneuver away from the boat. And he worried what would happen if it were to hit his plane. My concern level was high because she was, it appeared to be within inches, but more than likely within feet of our wings. And she, at those speeds, hit our wing. I just assumed that it was going to be a catastrophe and we would have to evacuate. But Lee said safely evacuating seven passengers in the middle of the cove raised even more concerns. If the boat did actually hit me, how was I going to get them to get out of the aircraft and to safety? Because the tide runs through there pretty fast and sometimes creates pretty strong current. And it's fairly cold water and... Of course, the sides of the bay are fairly rocky, too, so it would, have been, it would have been a tough maneuver if I had to do that. Fortunately, Lee didn't have to. He says a second boat appeared urging the woman, who he identified as a local business owner, to stop what she was doing, which she eventually did. Lee was able to get around her boat and safely take off for the flight-seeing trip. So I'm wondering if they ate at that restaurant and uh, they didn't leave a tip or something? I don't know. It's kind of weird. <laughs> Here's another lousy review. Yeah. Here's a view Ooh, from the shore. She's not messing about. That's, that's close. She's lost it. Somebody's got to fucking do something. Apparently, she has a reputation being a little crazy. Well, it's a great way to get uh, advertising for your restaurant, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Look at the, thing, the boat's going around in circles around the seaplane. Pretty close, I have to say. And then there's just the waves that it's creating. I think the prop hits the waves at some point. 
Really? Yeah, you can hear it actually. Yeah. yeah. Liz think, uh, says that she thinks you can hear the prop hitting the waves. Wow. She is being investigated by the police and the Coast Guard and stuff. Yeah. All right, so a couple of different clips here. Oh, that's when she gets really close. Whoa. Yeah. Look at that. There, you can hear That's it just unsafe in the least. Um, all right, let me read a little bit more from the story here. Um, let's see. Apparently, the lady driving the boat owns a nearby restaurant. We talked about that um, and isn't a fan of seaplanes landing in the cove. Uh, uh, let's see. I haven't seen any official news reports yet, but apparently she's been charged with the event has been reported to the FAA. And so there you have it. Uh, things, um, are, uh, not, um, not peaceful in, uh, Halibut Cove. FAA or Coast Guard? What's that? FAA. Oh, as far Coast as, uh, uh yeah. well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe They're still arguing agencies. over jurisdiction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow. Something else. I thought it was Now, uh, Alaska is a uh, famous cowboy estate, yeah? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. So, was she- whoops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought I could hear her shouting that. <laughs> we need a female by. version of that. Yeah. Oh, it, getting- it's actually pretty well known yeah. that uh, Alaska <laughs> is um, even kind of regulated a little bit differently when it comes to how they maintain and modify their airplanes. They're generally given a little more leeway up there because, I guess, travel by small airplane is so critical, and they need to have um, the capability to get places. It's uh, it's fairly common knowledge that it's easier to get stuff like uh, field approvals or STCs approved up there versus down here in some of the more bureaucratic areas of our country. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, I guess I should... Uh correct myself it says state troopers are actively investigating the incident as well as the u.s coast guard yeah. I hope boxes has mm-hmm. <laughs> what what's that so, uh, it wouldn't something? happen in canada would it Liz? <laughs> no jealous of that other beaver on the territory uh, <laughs> <laughs> the plane, the plane. wow that's i haul boxes made that comment that's interesting you know generally when you have a showdown between two craft that are going, you know, less than 20 miles an hour, you'd think it would be minimally impactful. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, from, <laughs> the boat, from the boat standpoint, when you're fiddling about with yeah. a, a big prop attached to a 450 horsepower engine, it seems like you could uh, make a mistake and really end your day poorly. And then, like he said, from the airplane's perspective, um, Water doesn't have to be very deep to uh, make it very difficult to get out of an airplane when it oh, yeah. uh, goes down into water. So yeah. and, it's been a bad situation and, for both of them. There's no real way to stop those things. I mean, it's got floats. Right. So there's, there's no, no brakes. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I was looking at the view from the cockpit of the airplane, when that boat was going across, I'm thinking, how do you, you know, what do you do? You're just like, you're just going and hope that it doesn't oh, golly, hit. Yes. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Horrible. All right. Um, how about uh, 12, Liz? Okay. Uh, Rod sent this in. Uh, he says, Lufthansa emergency, dot, 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 or not. And uh, this is a YouTube video from uh, Real ATC Communications. So here we go. Ooh, nice effect. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, a little bit of pre-roll here. Video based on HTC communications. Oh, do I have to stop this and read it? Lufthansa Boeing 747-800 registration Delta Alpha Bravo Yankee Oscar performing flight 401 from New York uh, JFK to Frankfurt, Maine, uh, Germany with 127 passengers was climbing through flight level 200 out of New York when the crew requested to level off due to an engine problem, but to continue the departure route. The crew subsequently advised they wouldn't cross the Atlantic and sometime later decided to return to JFK. The crew advised no assistance was needed. When the crew checked in with Tower, Tower advised emergency vehicles were on standby. The crew responded that the services were not needed. The aircraft landed safely on runway 4 left and taxied to the apron. All right, so we'll uh, resume play of this, this video. This happened in 2018, in uh, February of 2018. And here we go. Should hear some ATC now. Start the 401 heavy. You can reduce your speed now to uh, 165 if you'd like and turn right 320. Right, 320, Lufthansa 401. Actually, we're not in an emergency. Just switch my. Alright, Roger that. Then airspeed is your discretion. You're not in an uh, emergency, correct? Oh, you're not in an emergency? Negative. No, we have an engine failure, but not an emergency. Oh, not an emergency. Okay, just so an engine failure, but you're not an emergency. Are you over overweight landing? They want to know. Not at all. No, not even that. We're not even that. No. <laughs> Otherwise, we had, could have closed you. Oh yes, no, it's all right. Either way, you're gonna get in in a timely manner. So how about you turn right zero one zero general equalizer four left. <laughs> all right, zero one zero general equalizer four left. Four zero one. I know that voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bad. I'm not surprised. Voice 3818, reduce speed 180. 180, voice 3818. Can you call 172? Nope, I can't drop it at 2 for right now. I got traffic 2 o'clock here at about 2 miles. Not an emergency. But if you were an emergency, we probably could. Yeah, we'd no problem. Can you descend now? No. Nope, you cannot descend now, sir. 401, all right. Thank you. I love it. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> Would you like to declare an emergency now? Lufthansa <laughs> 401 Heavy, contact Kenny Tower, 123 Point Honor. 23941, bye bye. Bye bye. Kenny, Lufthansa 401. Lufthansa 401 Heavy, Kenny Tower, 106011, runway 4 left, clear to land. 401, clear to land. But you can't descend. And the emergency equipment is standing by. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'll be doing needed. I do not need some equipment. <laughs> okay, that was it. Uh, interesting exchange. And uh, I don't, yeah. I mean, I can kind of see the point of the Lufthansa pilots. We got four engines. We only lost one. We're okay. It's not an emergency. I don't know. Do you think part of this might be the, the different way that we approach uh, what we call Things pan like this or... going on, like, um, you know, here in the U.S., uh, we don't have pan, 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 pan. We, you know, we just have, we're declaring an emergency or nothing. Um, and maybe that's why the controllers were kind of like, what, really? You're not an emergency? You lost an engine, but you're not an emergency? Whereas maybe they probably probably wanted to have priority handling, but not like 
you know, emergency vehicles standing by and that kind of thing. I mean, I, I kind of get maybe there's like a middle ground, a middle ground in there somewhere. I don't know. What do you the think? way yeah. I always used to treat it was, yeah, you got four engines. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you lose one, you still got three. Um, but the safety factor you had from four engines is now no longer there mm-hmm. because if you lose one more, you're now really in a difficult situation, a two engine approach even in a 747, certainly in an A340, particularly if they were two uh, failed on one side, is uh, requires a lot of skill from the pilots. You know, uh, seeing a, a twin engine committal height of 500 feet, you can't go around below 500 feet. You've done a two hydraulic systems, which limits your controllability, what you've got available. There are lots of factors. Half your electric system has now fallen over, etc. So... I, I just cannot see the point of not declaring an emergency. What are they? Th- it's, it's like it's bravado. It's uh, what is what is the big thing? What's wrong with declaring an emergency? You lost an engine. Yeah, so you might have still a lot of redundancy, but you're not certainly in the situation that the aircraft designer imagined when he thought you'd be flying around the world and you're not good enough to cross the Atlantic. So you're still not as safe as you were. Just accept it, you know. Just be be a gentleman. Say, it's yeah, thanks very much. Very kind of you to guys. put that on. It wasn't really necessary, but I don't care. Um, I don't see this this pedantic reason for you know insisting that they're not an emergency. If they stand all that gear down, and then you have something else happen, you suddenly need to go. Oh no! Excuse me. No, I am in emergency. <laughs> uh, and they go. Well, I'm sorry, mate. You know, all, they've all gone home. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just don't see the point. But there you go. That's well, just you know, me. it almost seemed to me. I, I sensed that it wasn't necessarily the bravado of the thing. It was almost like he didn't want to have a mer- an emergency declared because he thought that it was going to be time consuming and reports and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that he's going to have to do that anyway. He's, I know. he's had an engine failure. I know. He's going to have to raise a safety report. He's going to have to do all the paperwork. Uh, that's and true. The fact yeah. that he didn't put out. And, and in fact, his safety department might well be on the phone going, why the hell didn't you raise an emergency? Yeah. You know, why did you, you know, try and get rid of the safety services that could have been made available? Right. Uh, because you were no longer as safe as you were. I don't know. I don't know. It's almost like he was trying to prove a point of some sort, yeah, which we it was, it really was don't agree that. with. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand that. Yeah. Your traffic control always has the option to declare the emergency for you. Yes, exactly. That's something he may not have realized. The argument is moody. He lost. Well, I bet. You know, I guarantee (laughs) that emergency equipment was there. Oh, Oh, for sure. All the lights (laughs) flashing and everything. I mean, I I sometimes used to despair because I didn't want my passengers, as we taxied off the runway with a minor problem, wondering why the hell they're being followed by a fleet of fire engines. And you'd be going, oh, for heaven's sake, now I've got to make a PA explaining why all these bloody fire engines are yeah. following us across the airport. Uh, I, I used to say, oh, uh, someone's had a birthday and we're just putting on some special lights for them. You know, I, I'm only joking. I am joking. Seriously, but, you know, yeah. uh, embarrassing but sometimes. You know, we don't use pan in this country. I used it once and it's like... I kind of got this pregnant pause, like, what the hell is what? that? What, what is yeah. he saying? I don't know. I said, man, 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 man. Nobody knew what I was talking about. It was, yeah. Yeah. I Re- never- read the IKO book of the air. 
Oh, Ikea? Anyway. What's that? Yeah. Um, okay. No, no, we're America. America. <laughs> yeehaw. 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 <laughs> Come on, man. Um, so, just, yeah. European pilots, Nick, just so uh, just so we're on the same page. I agree with you. We're cowboys over here. <laughs> if it is for this whole story, was European pilots. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to yeah. end it with this um we 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 need to end it on a on a funny happy note um larry the geezer in tulsa oklahoma uh said you know he heard about my future in uh full-time rv living and he said hey um i'm thinking uh this might fill the bill for you jeff um it says it's a (laughs) it's a um, beautiful a volkswagen uh, bus a beautiful one um kind of on, on right on yeah. the top of a, like a pontoon boat got split screen the whole yeah. line matching, it's a good one color. and it says if anyone needs me i'm going to be living in a van down on the river not by the <laughs> not, river not down the river. by the river but down on the river because yeah, you're going to be cruising around on it. that's beautiful isn't it i'd, I'd love to yeah. have something like that that's cool all right. Are you going to see Larry next month? I'm going to see Larry, um, yeah, next month, uh, the 19th. I'm laying over in Tulsa. If any of you out there listening are in the uh, area, um, please um, be uh, in tune. Uh, follow us on social media and that kind of thing and listen to us on the show. I when uh, I uh, give you more information about where we're going to be for the meetup, but it's definitely going to be one. Uh, Sean King and his wife and also um, uh, Larry Geezer and uh, Josh, uh, who sent us some uh, video feedback, which is just awesome. And I can't wait to uh, share that with you on the next I show. I haul boxes. Says, I can see Jeff circling beavers in this. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the airplane, of course, on floats, course. right? Okay. Uh, of course. Yeah. Anyway, very funny. Um and, oh, speaking of very funny, um, do we have time? We have time for one more, don't we? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's do that um, That last one um, that uh, somebody named Captain Jeff uh, sent in. I think I have it in the slides, don't I, Liz? The um, Instagram? Uh, yeah, it's at the very bottom. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Okay, cool. Um, so um, I, I think I heard about this on PTUK. Uh, they were talking about... Uh, Dublin's uh, new runway and uh, uh, pilot Pip um, <laughs> uh, plane safety oh. podcast uh, tweet, <laughs> tweeted this, uh, but it is an Instagram. Um, so uh, let me read this to you. And I, I laughed out loud. I mean, literally laughed out loud. This is so funny. Um, Whisper news or whispers news. Dublin's new runway saw its first successful takeoff today. As a Ryanair flight took to the sky from the uh, 320 million, is that uh, euros? 320 million euro stretch of tarmac, just as another Ryanair pilot prepared to wallop his plane and passengers into it like it owed him money. Uh, Ryanair uh, E34200, you are cleared to land on the new runway. Now, we do remind you, it's a new runway, so please don't do one of your usual slam-bang jobs, pleaded air traffic controllers from the tower today as the flight from Lanzarote approached. Lanzarote. Ah, I knew I'd get that wrong. The pleas went unheeded by Captain Eamon, uh, the the filling cracker, (laughs) Devlin, 
So Eamon, the filling cracker Devlin, eyeballed his approach to the new north runway, getting ready to guide his plane down gently until it was three feet off the tarmac and then just smash it into the ground as hard as he could. F your new runway, laughed an unhinged Devlin as his wheels slapped the <laughs> runway like it had said something bad about his mother. Uh, boom, textbook, play the and trombones, he added as bone-shaken passengers comforted each other with hugs and assurances that it was all over now while their flight taxied over to the terminal. WWN reached out to Ryanair in a bid to learn why they don't seem to have a single pilot that can land a plane without violence. But we are yet to receive a reply. <laughs> Excellent. It's because they're all Navy Excellent. pilots. Yeah, all Navy pilots, I think. Uh, That's it. Yeah. Cool. Very sensible. Anyway, I thought that was pretty funny. Tickled my funny Love bone. It. Anyway, <laughs> sorry about the language. Okay. Well, we uh, we got a huge amount we of did. feedback well uh, done, out of the gentlemen. way. And uh, we have more uh, feedback for you and uh, news for sure on our next episode sometime next week. Uh, in the meantime, though, we're going to remind you that we do have a website, AirlinePilotGuy.com, where it has all kinds of good stuff. Just check it out, um, AirlinePilotGuy.com. Uh, sorry, Nick Camacho, I haven't updated the site yet with your um, new information and such, but um, we'll get to it eventually. Uh, and, fun. yeah. You'll do it in post. Yeah, we'll do it in post. Um, and uh, we also would like to let you know that we are on social media, or what I like to call the social meds. And uh, who wants to volunteer to uh, tell everybody about where we where they can find us on the social medias? Uh, I can do that on Facebook. It's Airline Pilot Guy. On Twitter, it's at APG Crew, and on Instagram, it's. Sorry. Also, APG Crew. <laughs> it is. It is APG yeah. Crew on uh, Instagram as well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we are also, as you well know, uh, on a um, uh, social, quasi-social media kind of a platform here. And uh, let's see if uh, the guy that manages this. Uh, You're not alone the in thing. the house. No, I'm not alone in the house. Hey. Hello. Hello. Can you tell us about Slack? Uh, it's okay. We're used to it. Come on over here and tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Thank you very much, Hillel, as always. And uh, to, um, uh, close the door. Ah, oh yeah. Delta P. I guess he was excited about our earlier discussion of uh, Delta P. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, th th thank you, Jeff, uh, for joining us and adding your expertise in regard to um, uh, mostly the 737 stuff, but also the other fighter-related items. Uh, it was uh, nice having you on with us today. And oh, thank uh, you for having me on. Appreciate yeah. it. All right. And then, of course, also uh, we want to thank the lady that's responsible for all the work 
behind Three. the scenes, what making us look good. Thank you, Liz. My pleasure. All right. And with that, wishing you clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Bye, everybody. Dick Snack. <laughs> See y'all next time. <laughs> Bye, everybody. See y'all later. <laughs> that was worse. Good day. Just fine. Airline.